Now, radio and television are both, as we know, medium able to make a unique blend of information with entertainment. The new supplying function that radio could perform was evident very early to everyone. Yet it had a fairly tough time to get itself established, not with the public, but with itself and with its competition. This is Albert Mitchell's Daytime Answer Man program at your service. A program that answers your questions and helps you out with your problems. Anyone can ask a question about anything and everyone will receive a reply. Some on the air, all by mail. And now here he is, your Daytime Answer Man. Good afternoon and a happy Thanksgiving Day to you all. Now for today's questions. Here's the first from a Bridgeport, Connecticut listener. How long did it take the pilgrims to eat the first Thanksgiving dinner? A whole week, even with the help of the Indians. As we begin November and homecoming season, I wonder what you're thankful for. For many at 12.45 p.m. Eastern Time on November 28, 1946, when the answer man took to the air over WOR in New York, it was the simple things. Family Thanksgiving, a place to live, and a return home from World War II. It's easy to look back in time with a nostalgic tint of simplicity. One of my hopes for breaking walls has been to shed light on the past using the medium of radio as a means to more accurately tell the story of this era. A Scarsdale, New York boy wants to know if they had folding chairs back in the 18th century. Oh yes, and before that, folding stools, which were called fold stools and were not unlike the present-day camp stool. A bride living on Staten Island writes, I would like to make my first Thanksgiving Day dinner as nearly like the first one served by the pilgrims as possible. Can you tell me what they ate? Well, the main items of food served at the first Thanksgiving Day feast were turkey, Indian pudding, and pumpkin pie. A letter from a Larchmont, New York listener reads, As I remember it, the first Thanksgiving was a celebration of a bumper crop the pilgrims had harvested. Am I right? And what was the crop? You are right. The crop was 20 acres of corn and six of barley and peas. A note from a Mamaroneck, New York housewife reads, Please tell me if the early colonists learned how to make cranberry sauce from the Indians or if the Indians learned how from the white settlers. Neither. Each knew how before they met the other. When the pilgrim settlers arrived in this country, they found the Indians making a cranberry sauce with maple syrup, while the people of Europe had learned to make cranberry sauce with sugar from the Scandinavians. The Answer Man was a quarter-hour written question program with various guest hosts throughout the country. New York's was Albert Mitchell. Co-creator Bruce Chapman and his staff answered almost a million questions via mail each year. Some of the most exciting made the air. Thanksgiving 1946's questions centered around the traditions of the holiday. It also indirectly gives me something to be grateful for. Let's take it back to the Open of Breaking Walls episode 75 with Radio Broadcasting's Genesis. A Brooklyn woman asks, Is there such a thing as a turkey with all white meat? Yes, white turkeys produce all white, or at least all light meat. This question comes from a Philadelphia listener. What was the worst blizzard the East has ever suffered? 
Those who survived it say the blizzard of 1888. The blizzard blew from March 11th to March 14th, with New York and Philadelphia being the city's hardest hit. The wind at one time blew the snow at a rate of 46 miles an hour. It's after 7 p.m. on Sunday, March 11th, 1888. We're on the roof of the Equitable Life Assurance Society building at 120 Broadway in Lower Manhattan. The movement you're hearing is coming from Sergeant Elias B. Dunn, New York City's chief weatherman. He's come up to the roof to take the temperature. At the time, the Weather Bureau kept in touch with the Coast Guard through telephone, telegraph, and carrier pigeons. Like other weather station chiefs, Dunn is linked to the 170 regular government weather stations all over the country. Sunday's forecast called for light rain. Ordinarily, no one manned the Bureau on Sundays, but during the afternoon, the early spring weather had suddenly and alarmingly taken a turn for the worse, with the temperature rapidly falling. Now what was thought to be a passing rain shower has turned into heavy sleet with almost gale force winds. After taking the temperature, Dunn rushes downstairs into the office below to worriedly telegraph the conditions to Washington, D.C. He'll get no response. All communication for New York with the outside world was gone. Overnight, the freezing rain turned to snow. By daybreak Monday morning, New York City was engulfed in a furious blizzard with winds as high as 85 miles per hour and temperature conditions still rapidly falling. People were trapped inside homes, places of business, or most dangerously, stuck out on the streets. The snow would continue with hurricane force until Tuesday evening, 48 hours after the storm began. In New York City, an estimated 200 people died. The reason the entire eastern seaboard lost contact during the great blizzard of 1888 overhead communication wires. Numerous telephone, telegraph, and electrical poles were destroyed. Their snapped, electrified wires created additional danger amidst the 40-foot snowdrifts. The highest snowdrift, 52 feet, was measured in Grayson, Brooklyn. In the aftermath, New York passed legislation necessitating all power lines be buried underground. This storm exasperated the need for reliable communication without wires. Now back to the answer man. A Paoli, Pennsylvania listener asks, was the very first Thanksgiving proclaimed on the third, fourth, or fifth Thursday in November? On the second Thursday in December. The first Thanksgiving was proclaimed by Governor Bradford to be held on December 15th, 1621. And a young bride living in Scotch Plains, New Jersey asks, could I make candied sweet potatoes without using sugar? Oh, yes. For every six medium-sized sweet potatoes you wish to candy, use a half cup of honey, maple syrup, or corn syrup. Here's a question from a Mount Vernon, New York woman. 
Do you know that poem that tells us what to be thankful for on Thanksgiving Day that you could read for us? There are many good ones, but Thanksgiving by Ellen Topper seems to answer your question the best. It goes, for health and strength, for home and friends, for comfort in a time of need, for every kindly word and deed, for happy thoughts and pleasant talk, for guidance in our daily walk, for all these things... Give thanks. Dum pa dum pa dum tu ba dum da da dum pa dum pa do da. Da pa dum pa dum pa dum tu ba dum da da dum pa dum pa do da. Pa dum pa dum pa dum tu ba dum do do dum pa dum pa do do. Da pa dum pa dum pa dum tu ba dum da da dum pa dum pa do do. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode one twenty one. My name is James Scully. Tonight, we finish our Americana miniseries by coming home for November's festivities. We'll cheer for the home team, taste the best turkey dressing, and remember what's most important with some of radio's best. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Velvet and Voice's a cappella version of the Holly and the Ivy. It's the perfect track to get us in the holiday mood. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City is very much on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. The holly and the ivy I started locally here in Los Angeles on local station KFI. That was back in 1930. We came out here with my wife and little baby in 1929, just looking for a job out here. I'd done no radio work back in my hometown of Peoria, Illinois at uh-huh. all. But I'd done some advertising work in department stores and things like that, and I was looking for a job out here in advertising work. And I ran into a man in an advertising agency who... <laughs> Lights were turned off, they couldn't pay their light bill. It was just the beginning of the Depression in 1930, this was. And he said, well, you have a nice speaking voice, you know, like they always say. And luckily, being an advertising man, he could get me an audition. So I took an audition at one station, KHJ, and they just hired a man away from KFI. So he took me over to KFI, and I took an audition there. And fortunately, I'd had some German in high school and Spanish, and their audition at that time was largely musical. And you can't fake German when you're doing German musical terms. (laughs) So I uh, just hung around there for about three weeks, sitting out in the lobby, until they finally put me on steadily. So that was my start locally on KFI in 1930, which was a very good place to work because they had the NBC hookup here at that time. NBC had no studios here. and Any work Mm -hmm. was done on the network for NBC, uh, KFI did it. So I was able to get some start on the network at that time. 
Then I went to uh, NBC as staff announcer here when they opened in, in Hollywood in 1936 and stayed there until uh, 1942, and I freelanced from then on. One Man's Family, brought to you by Fleischmann's Yeast. family is dedicated to the mothers and fathers of the younger generation and to their bewildering offspring. Tonight we present Chapter 8, Book 44, entitled Thanksgiving at the Dairy Ranch. And now before we join the barbers, there's something I promised the Fleischmann people I'd do for them. On November 22, 1942, the Just Heard Ken Carpenter was doing freelance announcing for One Man's Family, then in its ninth season on the air. The show aired Sunday evenings at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC. Many of them can expect benefits from Flashman's Yeast in just one short week. Well, that's right, Ted. J. Anthony Smythe starred as Henry Barber, with Minetta Ellen as his wife, Fanny. Barber was a stockbroker who lived in the Seacliff area of San Francisco. The show centered around the entire extended family's dilemmas, exploits, and shared love. Smythe played the title role for all 27 years until the last broadcast in 1959. The program was broadcast live coast-to-coast from KFI Studios in Los Angeles. On the Sunday before Thanksgiving, the Barber clan celebrated at the Dairy Ranch. Do as millions of others are now doing and ask for Fleischmann's Fresh Yeast with the yellow label. Today is that certain day. This is the occasion of the annual trek of the barber clan to the country for the one and only purpose of sinking a fang into a turkey leg or a wing if you happen to be so namby-pamby in your taste as to prefer light to dark meat. Anyway, big and little barbers alike are down at the dairy ranch to do justice to the ancient and honorable custom of passing up the plate for seconds and thirds. They're here not only to eat, but to give thanks that not only are we allowed the noble bird for the table this year, but likewise a bit of cranberry sauce and bread dressing, although uh, I prefer oyster and rice dressing myself. The hosts are jointly Cliff and Irene and Hazel, and just now at 12 noon... Irene and Hazel are up to their elbows in parsley, turkey bastings, mincemeat, hard sauce, and all the other ingredients of the satisfactory Thanksgiving dinner. And woe be he who intrudes in the sacred precincts of the kitchen at this crucial hour. That's why all and sundry have been summoned out in the front yard by Paul from underfoot. All right, quiet, everybody. Yes, quiet! (laughs) Goodness, such a big voice for such a little boy. What do you mean, little? (laughs) Cut to the quick. Now, if I may have your attention, please. Are we all here? Why, sure. Here. Anybody who isn't here, speak up. <laughs> You're such a dope, Jack. Does that keep you from being nuts about me? Uh-oh, makes me nuttier than ever. <laughs> oh, for goodness sakes, are we just going to stand around and listen to Jack and Betty? Yeah, let's do something. First, we've got to have the roll call. That's the first on the list, isn't it, Paul? Well, if we're all present... Oh, well... no, we always have a roll call. <laughs> yeah, sure we do, Uncle Paul. Well, if you insist, quiet for roll call. We'll start at the top of the list. Henry Barber, sire of the clan and noblest barber of them all. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Think nothing of it. Fanny Barber, our mother and the power behind the throne. (laughs) (laughs) Mom's with the little children up in the nursery. Doesn't she want to go for a walk? She said not. Hmm. 
Paul Barber? And <clears throat> mighty glad of it. And that goes for us, too. I should say so. Next, uh, Hazel Barber Herbert. Absent. Hey, what do you mean absent? She's on special Thanksgiving KP duty, up to her knees in rice and oyster dressing. I prefer old-fashioned bread dressing myself. Oh, here you go. Hey, why don't we give three cheers for Mom? In there walking to give us a good dinner. Good idea. Six for Hazel. Rock, rock, rock. Rock, rock, rock. Hazel! 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 Hazel. <laughs> hey, look, that goes for Irene, too. She's in there beating her brains out right alongside of Hazel. All gone right. Six for Irene, everybody. We're just giving the cooks a big hand. Well, thanks very much, but you're making the cooks very self-conscious and nervous. Hi, Hazel. You'll have to excuse us now. We've got other things to do besides stand at the kitchen window. How's the turkey coming, Mom? <laughs> we'll find out in good time. Just the window, Irene. Goodbye now. Boy, it sure is wonderful to have a lot of good cooks in the family, isn't it? <laughs> Come on, let's get on with the roll call. It's taking all day. Yes, you're quite right, Joan. Uh, next, Clifford Barber. Here. Claudia Barber, Lizzie. Present. Now, am I glad that I'm out here this year. That's right. Last year, you were the hostess. And chief cook and bottle washer. And a mighty good one. Jack and Betty Barber. Here. Hey, that's sort of crowding us, isn't it? Saying our names together. Ah, oh, but I thought you two were one now. What do you mean, one? Was Elizabeth Sharon Ann? We're three. <laughs> and if you don't think Elizabeth Sharon Ann is a person... Hey, are we going to talk about babies? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Aunt Betty. I didn't mean to interrupt. You're quite right, Pinky. We'll save Elizabeth Sharon Ann for some other occasion. Go on, Paul. Um, Teddy Barber? Present and accounted for. Oh, just who is accounting for you these days, Teddy? <laughs> I am, Cliff, and doing a good job, too. I bet you aren't that. Well, go on, Paul. Oh, yes, um, who else do we have on our roster? Hey, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Henry, alias Hank Herbert. Present and accounted for. William, alias Pinky Herbert. Here I am. Good. Joan Roberts Lacey. I'm present. Hey, here comes Dan Murray. Hey, Dan, come here. For goodness sake, Dan, where you been? You almost got left out of this. Well, I've been putting on my new bib and tucker. Oh, a doggone clothes horse. Well, hardly. But I didn't want to sit down to the Thanksgiving festivity spelling of Her Majesty the Cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just in time for roll call. Daniel Murray, first officer of the dairy ranch and handmaiden to our friend the bovine. Present and happy to be in such pleasant company. Ah, the prettiest speeches I've heard in many a day. <laughs> And now that everybody's accounted for, let me say I'm sorry we can't have with us today our other dear ones. Nicky, someplace we don't know where, in the service of his country. Tracy Baker, when last heard from, flying patrol in Alaska. And Wayne Grubb, a full-fledged lieutenant in the Glider Pilot Command, now stationed at Albuquerque, New Mexico. Let's pause for just a moment's silence in their honor. Now, I think everyone understands what's to be done now. We break up into groups of threes and fours and start out over the hills and fields in any direction preferred. This season's rating was 14.8. One Man's Family was written, created, and directed by radio legend Carlton E. Morse. What were your credentials before you started writing uh, One Man's Family or Two Right There? What did you do before that? You were a young man at the time? Well, the show started in 32. I was a young man at 31. <laughs> I had been a newspaper man, both in Sacramento, 
on the old Union, which Bret Hart and Mark Twain contributed mm -hmm. to. And then I came down and was on the copy desk of the San Francisco Chronicle for three, four years. And then I went to Seattle, on the Seattle Times. Mm -hmm. It was up there when I we heard our first radio. Uh, it wasn't a show, it was a, a boxing championship. And I've mm -hmm. forgotten who was fighting. <laughs> but came back to San Francisco and, and newspapers were folding awfully fast. So a friend of mine had a job over at NBC, and I went over and uh, was taken on a week-by-week -week basis to uh, see what I could do. I had written columns for papers, but I had done nothing in a dramatic form at all. One Man's Family, of course, was probably the longest-running serial drama on radio. When was the first broadcast? In 1932, in April of 1932. It ran uh, about 27 and a half years. That's a Jew, Pinky? Jew? Okay, sure, suits me swell. There's no water in the creek, though, just food. Well, we won't mind that. We're going for exercise, not water. All right. All in, squad. Here we go. Oh, I love this. The kind of impression it made both in the listening audience of the general public and within the radio industry was extraordinary in that the president of mutual broadcasting and competing network sent a telegram to Paley saying when radio distinguishes itself in this fashion it is good for the entire industry and we want to congratulate you and thank you and you know that kind of treatment. The program originated here in California. But at New York, at 45 Madison Avenue, the headquarters of the network, a memorandum went around the following day saying, those of you who missed that broadcast last night, for those of you, we are suspending work for an hour between 3 and 4 this afternoon, and all of the audition rooms will be available to have that program piped into these rooms so that those who missed can hear it, and those who heard it can hear it again. Uh, you know, it was given that kind of treatment. Norman Corbin was 27 years old when he was hired by CBS in April of 1938. For three years, he honed his craft on shows like Words Without Music, The Pursuit of Happiness, So This Is Radio, and Forecast. In 1941, he was tasked with taking over the Columbia Workshop for 26 weeks. These plays are today known as 26 by Corwin. They range from whimsy, to romance, to high drama, to coming-of-age tales. CBS refused to offer the series up for sponsorship. Corwin's programs weren't about revenue. They were about advancing the medium itself. After the bombing at Pearl Harbor in Manila on December 7, 1941, Corwin penned a play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. It was at the behest of President Roosevelt. The play was called We Hold These Truths and broadcast on December 15th. Simultaneously heard on all four networks, 60 million tuned in. It was at that time the largest rating share of any dramatic program ever. 
1944, Corwin had free reign over his productions. The workshop essentially became branded as Columbia Presents Corwin. The name Billing was tremendous. From there on, it became the following series was 26 by Corwin, and then there was Columbia Presents Corwin, and there were two of those. He spent the last days of World War II producing On a Note of Triumph, in honor of Germany's surrender, and 14 August, in honor of Japan's. Well, they've given up. They're finally done in, and the rat is dead in an alley back of the Wilhelmstrasse. Take a bow, G.I. Take a bow, little guy. The Superman of tomorrow lies dead at the feet of you common men of this afternoon. I don't know whether it began with a lust for prestige. It began with a conscionable attitude toward broadcasting. They felt we ought to have a program when the Nazis surrendered. That was VE Day. So they asked me to suspend the series that I was then working on. It was the, the second edition of Columbia Presents Corwin. And they said, Norman, would you stop, knock off, and immediately begin to work? So I did. There was no time to be lost, and I prepared on a note of triumph. The Columbia workshop resumed after the war. Corwin opened it again on February 2nd, 1946, with Homecoming. It's a bittersweet slice of life about a GI who comes home to the farm, and the adjustments his family would have to make. The Columbia workshop returns to the air. Radio's foremost laboratory for new writers and production techniques begins a new series of broadcasts to be heard each week at this time. President and Director of Programs of the Columbia Broadcasting System, Mr. Davidson Taylor. A great many of us at the Columbia Broadcasting System have a profound affection for the Columbia Workshop, not only because of the distinguished productions which it did during the five years it was on the air between 1936 and 1941, but also because of the remarkable talents which have first been brought to public attention by the Workshop. We are happy that the stations affiliated with CBS share our affection for the Columbia Workshop. And the resumption of the Columbia Workshop broadcasts is due in large part to the demand of the CBS affiliates that it returned to the air. We think there will be general agreement that it is good not only for Columbia, but also for radio to have the workshop on the air again. We hope that the new series will stimulate the same interest in better writing and better production methods that the old series did. Appropriately, Today's script is called Homecoming. The author is a young Canadian, Norman Williams of Toronto, and it is the first radio script by him ever to be broadcast in the United States. This unknown author's work is produced and directed by the most distinguished and best-known alumnus of the workshop, Mr. Norman Corwin. It is now my pleasure to welcome you, our audience, to the Columbia Workshop and to open its doors again to the creative men and women of radio. The Columbia Workshop presents Homecoming by Norman Williams, produced and directed by Norman Corwin. The original musical score is by Lynn Murray.
that window up, Ted. I got a draft on my neck. Sure, Ma. Never felt it before. You feeling good lately, Ma? Uh-huh. Maybe you need a rest. Huh. Maybe you've been out in the hot sun that's addled your head. I was only wondering. I want you to be sick. Well, I'm not sick. Ain't a gonna be. If what you're trying to say is that I'm an old woman, well, you just stop and recollect you're as old as me. Yes, and a bit more. I know. Seems a woman's different. Stronger, you mean. <laughs> more grit, more guts. Wears longer. That's what different. Okay, Ma. Oh, don't fret so much. That's a sign of old age, fretting. <laughs> oh, you got him that time, Ma. You sure know how. You sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Always did, son. <laughs> Never could have lived with the old cuss this long less it did. Oh, that wasn't no draft anyway. Thing is, Pa's got this old buggy tearing along so fast, 28 miles an hour. I've seen them big trains go by in the city, and I swear none of them makes this kind of speed. Gosh, no. Seen them in the city. Oh, not so fast, Pa. I can't stand it when you go so fast. You wait till you got a right to criticize. You wait till you make that big pile of money and got your big limousine, and then you can criticize. Oh, Paul. Right now, you're riding in my car. It's good enough for you to ride in okay, then you can ride. As soon as it ain't, then you got your two feet. Well, I was only fooling. I didn't mean no harm. Oh, Ted didn't mean nothing. I don't want no arguments today. Just ride along in peace. Okay, Ma. This is a special day. Got a right to be glad. I ain't arguing. I'm just saying what I think. Man's got a right to do that, special day or no special day. Well, that's all right now. Let's ride along in peace. But your wife Millie would have come today, Ted. Appears to me she would have, being one of the family now. I told Ma why she didn't come. Uh, Millie feels uncomfortable coming out, Pa. Don't like people looking her up and down. Now, th that's it. She's mocked. People are going to look. Nothing wrong in that, I can see. Well, now, she don't think there's anything wrong in it. She she just feels that way about coming out. Besides, it's hot today. Wouldn't be good for her bumping over the road like this. Yeah, Millie's got to be careful. She needs to set down a lot and not get wore out. Doctor told her that. Doctors. A lot they know. They ever had a baby? Oh. <laughs> I seen the day when a woman worked right up to her time. I seen them have their baby and be back in the fields the next day. I seen them too, Pa. I seen them later when they begin to cripple up. Like old Ma Bates can't hardly move around now. Yeah, women get soft on us. Women get so they can't do them things without a lot of perfume and oxygen tent and old raft of doctors. Ah, Pa, don't get silly. I ain't getting silly. I'm just telling you. They get that way and we'll have such a bunch of scrawny kids like it's never been seen. Our kid won't be scrawny. Not saying yours will. I'm looking ahead, way past yours. My goodness, people could hear us carrying on. They'd sure think we was a cussed bunch. Looking ahead, that's all. Well, so am I. But I'm looking ahead to just a little while. I can't talk about it. I want to, but I just can't talk about it. It's, it's on my mind all the time. Bert's coming home. Can't think sense. Oh, ain't no need for sense, Ma. Bert's coming back. That's sense enough. Oh, what's that on the road? Where? Oh, oh now you run over something. Come right out of the ditch there. Look out the back window, Ted. What was it? <laughs> a fool hand. A darn fool hand. I told you it was going too fast. Boom. <laughs> Don't strike me as funny. <laughs> oh, you should see it like a mess of eggs. Scramble like a mess of eggs. <laughs> well, uh, there ain't no use stopping here. <laughs> Woo -hoo, what a mess. Sure let us fall. What are you laughing at? <laughs> uh, it was funny, that's all. Well, there's nothing funny in running over a neighbor's bird. 
I don't see the fun of it. You're awful touchy today, Pa. Maybe I am, and I hear some of them funny ideas you picked up in the city. Now, Pa, don't get started on that again. I'm running the car. I'm driving, Ada. I guess I'll talk about what I want. Oh, let's let's get started. Just, just ride along in peace. I don't like them ideas in the boy's head. Nothing the boy's been on the farm all his life. Don't ring true. Doc, I didn't commit no murder. I ain't glad you squashed that silly old bird. Plenty more birds. City kind of thing. Oh, right along peaceful. I don't want men fight today. I'm peaceful. I never said nothing. So am I peaceful. Wouldn't be right for Bert to come home to a lot of fighting and carrying on. I couldn't suspect he's had plenty of that in four years. I want him quiet. He'll need quiet. Said we might drop in Dad Martin's on the way down. It's right there ahead. Got time? Sure, we got time. There's the ad by the fence. Uh, like always. We don't have to go off the road. Only be a minute. Well, I guess we got time. I'm getting awful jittery inside thinking about birth. Oh, Ab. Stopped in like I said we would. Well, I thought you'd be along soon. This your big day, hey? Oh, most wonderful day ever was. Looks if the whole country's turning out. The whole town will be packed like a bond in a thunderstorm. <laughs> Having a band, too, and the mayor's giving a speech. Yes, Bert's going to have a real fine welcome home. Boy's got the idea our boy's the only one uh, coming back. Well, there's 40 of them. Everyone from this here county. All sent back together. Makes it nice. Yes. Yes, lots of families in one piece again today. Peterson's boys in the same lot. That's right. He got himself a decoration. Mail probably mentioned him special. Uh-huh. Well, my goodness, I guess they all done their share. Not coming into town, Ab? No, no, I'm kind of busy from here on in. Come along with us, if you like. No, folks won't be alone a time like this. Huh? I'm busy from here on in anyway. Yeah, just you say. We'd better be getting on. Don't want to miss the doing. Sure, sure. I tell you, boy, I was asking. Yeah, you better well. Might drop by on the way back. Bert will want to see you, like as not. Bye, man. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Never could figure Ab out. How'd you mean? Well, all the years we've been neighbors, you might say. Never felt to really know him. Lonely man, I guess. Lonely men get queer sometimes. What he says, it's queer somehow. It's just the way he says it. Wonder why he don't go into town. That's Ab. Whenever there's anything doing, he'll stand there by the road and watch everybody else rushing hell-bent for election. We're, we're getting near town, Paul. A way to go, yeah. Well, I can see it over the next hill, though. Gosh. Gosh almighty. What are you goshing for, Ted? Just hit me, Ma. Just hit me hard for the first time. We're going to see Bert. <laughs> We're going to shake that cuss by the hand. Yeah, I dreamt about it last night. We're going to talk to him. Ma, it's been four years since we talked to him. Yes. <laughs> oh, look at the town down there. Oh, look at it, Pa. I'm a-looking. <laughs> full of flags, full of cars, yes. full of people from all over everywhere. <laughs> March all the way back. 
All the ceremony is going to be right here. Oh, this is a good spot. The mayor will spout off on that platform. Oh, don't it look nice? All draped in flags that way. You know, flags always give me a nice, safe feeling. <laughs> they ought to when you won a war. You know, I remember waving them same old flags way back in school. Singing my lungs out and then patriotic songs they had. <laughs> my, my. I used to do that myself. <laughs> oh, look. Hmm? Look at that old man William, drunk as a coot. Goodness. White, white old pal, old pal, it's good to see you. Take it easy there. Hey, white, you old thief, you old pirate, you old son of a... Nope, I ain't going to say it. I promised my old woman I wasn't going to swear no more and no more at all. Where is your old woman, Tom? Oh, I lost her in the crowd. Yeah. I don't know how it ever happened. It's a terrible thing. Terrible thing losing your old woman, ain't it, huh? Sure must be. Oh, it's a terrible thing. It ain't so hard to duck her anymore. Old girl is slowing up. Mm. Hey, wife. Mm. Old man. The whole regiment's coming back today. Left, right, left, right. All them smart boys marching back. They beat them to the ground. And they killed the dirty rats that are coming home. The old regiment's coming home. We ought to be in the parade. We've done our bit. Remember? They're coming over the ridge, White. Get your fool head down. Hey, Stinky, let's go see the flag. Hey, get your hollering so much. What's the matter with you? Keep your heads down. Keep your heads down. It's a long way to Tipperary. First time I ever seen him so liquored up in a long time. So I, you know, a man like that scares me. I'm sure glad you never took to drink. Well, I just wouldn't have lived with you, that's all I can say. He was gassed bad in the first war, Ma. You gotta make allowances. When he gets lit up that way, he gets the wars mixed up in his head. Well, then he shouldn't get that way. I remember two years ago, they shot off a cannon on November 11th, and Williams got it in his head it was the Germans, and charged right through old Dragon's cake shop. <laughs> Never did see such a mess in my life. <laughs> Tends his land good most all year, though. Well, ain't none of my business what he does. Mercy, I wish I hadn't wore these shoes. It's burning my feet, something terrible. You want to sit down? Where is there to sit? Well, we could park on the monument and back up. Huh? Can we sit on that? Well, other people is. Oh, it's mostly kids, though. That don't make no difference. Kids is people. Well, uh, There. Uh, Climb up to second roost. Uh, Can you see over all them heads? Uh, oh, this is fine. Wonder other folks didn't think of it. You settled? Yes, I'm settled. Yeah. Yeah, got a real view now. What was that? The cannon, Ma. They fired off the cannon. Train must be in. Yes, the train must be in. I sure hope old Williams wasn't near no bakery when they fired that off. Oh, I'm just beginning to realize what's happening. I'm scared. I'm a bit geeky feeling myself. How do you feel about it all? Bert's coming home. Well, yeah. You ain't gonna laugh. Oh, I don't think so. Well, I, I feel about the same as I used to when I was waiting around outside and you was having the kids. Oh, oh. Waiting for the first holler. Waiting to see you. <laughs> I got that same funny feeling in my stomach I had then. Yeah. You think he'll be the same? You know, I read a piece saying how much war changes, boys. Yeah, they get money right in that tripe. Don't mean a thing. Well, all the same, I... Ah, now, don't worry yourself sick. Bert's come through all right. We gotta be thankful and glad. 
We got no right sitting here with long faces. It's the band, by gosh. They're coming. Oh, mercy. I knew this would happen. I just knew and I'd start crying. Well, you go right ahead and cry, Ma. You got a right to cry. Stand up, Ma. Stand up and you can see the band. Yeah, Ma. Look at him coming down the street. Oh, can you see him? Can you see Bert? Well, Bert will be further back uh, after the band, I guess. There he is. Oh, there he is. Get used to looking around and seeing you there, son. One thing you learn in the Army, Ma, and that's to get used to new things fast. You've been all over the world. <laughs> Not quite, kid, but a good lot of it. I've seen so many things I wouldn't know where to start telling about them. Goodness, we've been jawing back and forth so fast since you got in. I, I don't have to recollect what we said and what we ain't. Yes, you've got a lot to catch up on, same as we have. I suppose so. You didn't write none too often. We was moving a lot. The second run was brief. The workshop's final broadcast was January 25, 1947. None of us was ever any big-handed writing. Head of CBS William Paley had returned from war. He was about to institute the Package Program Initiative. I suppose that the radio network really came into its own after World War II when we went very heavily into doing our own programs. Up until that time, almost all of the programs in the schedule were produced by outside organizations, bought by the advertiser, delivered to us by the advertising agency, and the advertiser was really in control of the schedule. When Mr. Paley came back from the war, he seized that opportunity to embark upon the development of our own programs, which would be owned by the company and sold to the advertiser. With that one concept and the implementation of it, network radio changed from an advertiser-dominated medium to a broadcaster-dominated medium. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Kroger Tender Ray Beef. No other beef so fresh can be so tender presents Hearts in Harmony Transcribed. 
K is for Kroger. C is for cut. B is for beef. Broadcast five days a week from 1941 into the 1950s, Hearts and Harmony was a syndicated soap opera sponsored by the grocery store chain Kroger. It told the story of Steve Parker, a poor young man dreaming of becoming a composer. He falls in love with Penny, a beautiful singer who comes from a rich family. As the series progressed, Penny became the main character, with stories centered around the many adventures and scrapes she got herself into. The sponsor Kroger was a supermarket chain founded by Bernard Kroger in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1883. In the 1930s, they became the first grocery chain to monitor product quality by testing foods. They were also the first to surround their stores on all sides by parking lots. It is today the U.S.'s leading revenue supermarket and second in sheer retail size behind Walmart. On November 12, 1947, Penny is coming home from the hospital after an accident. The entire cast is readying the return. But whether you buy a steak or roast, you receive more meat, less waste. That's at your Kroger store. Visit your neighborhood Kroger store soon. Make it a rule to buy Kroger cut beef and get more meat for your money. And now, Hearts in Harmony. Penny Gibbs is coming home. They examined her at the Heatherton Hospital this morning and said that she could leave. The ordeal of the accident is now behind her. Behind her, too, the suffering caused by her injuries and the tragedy of her fiancé, Barry Carlton's death. Today is Penny's last day as a patient. And in her room, Nurse Angela Brill says to her, Penny, we're going to try something now. Something we should have tried several days ago, but we didn't know you'd fare so well in the examination. Try what, Angela? Well, you've been sitting up for days with no ill effects, so now we're going to try letting you walk. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> it might not be, Penny. Just a few steps at first. No, sir, I can do better than a few steps, Angela. Don't you dare try. Are you ready for a few steps? No, oh, you bet I am. Oh, no, not so fast, Penny. In just a minute. You mustn't try this alone. Here, take hold of my arm. <sighs> All right, if I have to. <laughs> You'll want to once you're on your feet. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Now take a good, firm grip on my arm and lean on me all you want. Wait, here. I'll lift you up a little. All right. <laughs> there. How does it feel to stand up? Oh, a little strange. You still think you can dance across the room and back again? No, no, I don't think so. I didn't think you would. Now, take a step, just a small one. All right. There. Now another. Oh, I'm not very sure of myself, am I? <laughs> no one would expect you to be. Another step now. All right. Oh. <laughs> I took two of them, Angela. Don't overdo it, please. Now, lean on me, Penny. Oh, I'm afraid I'll have to. This is almost like learning to walk all over again, isn't it? It's more than almost. I feel as though I've never walked in my life before. <laughs> well, you'll be all right again in four or five days. Or a week at the most. Now, let's turn around and go back to your chair again. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're better. Careful now. Don't let go of me. I like to try a few steps alone, Angela. Not this time. Maybe later. Maybe you're right. Oh, that chair looks good. Don't hurry to it, Penny. Slow steps now. 
slow. That's right. Now hold on to me while you lower yourself here in the chair. I never knew a few steps could be such a problem. It's awfully good to sit down again. Penny, you don't feel faint, do you? No, just a little out of breath. I had no idea I was so weak. You'll get stronger every day. A week from now, you'll be walking around as if nothing had ever been the matter. I hope so. You will be. Being home will help as much as anything else. Well, I suppose so. Angela. Yes? You and Dr. Evans have been awfully nice to me. I'm very grateful for all he's done. And I do feel very close to you. I hope just because you're leaving us, it won't mean it's the last we'll see of you, Penny. I'll miss you terribly. Well, I'll miss you, too. I'm dying to get out of this place. I'm sick of it. I want to get out of it, but I'll still miss you. Maybe we'll see each other from time to time, always. I hope so. I'd like that. When I'm off duty, I'll try to come up and see you. Would that be all right? I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Because, Angela, I'm going to need somebody to talk to when I'm home. I'm sure you'll find a lot of people to talk to. No. No, not the way I'd like to talk. Not the things I want to talk about. I can tell you, Angela, because I know you understand. Much as I, I want to get out of here, I dread going home. The very thought of it terrifies me. I think I know why. Yeah, I'm sure you do. You're the only one who does. That's why I thought I could tell you, Angela. You know why I dread it. Because the worst is yet to come. Didn't you ever stop remembering? No, Penny. And I haven't to this day. But the memories are dulled, and when I look at a dance card or pressed flower now, I remember how sweet he was, and not that he's gone. If I could only forget that Barry's gone. But I guess I'll never be able to do it. Not at home. Every time the doorbell rings, I'll think of all the times that Barry rang. Every time I look out of my bedroom window, I'll look toward the corner and wait to see his car turn into the street. Every time I see a mountain, and I can see the mountains from my bedroom window... I'll remember that Barry and I were going to live on one way up where the morning clouds were far below us. Not always, Penny, but for a while. But that while is going to seem like an eternity, I know. Angela, maybe I shouldn't go home. You have to, sometime. No matter when you go, it'll be just as painful. I think it's better to go home and get it over with. The sooner you get it over with, the sooner you'll be back to normal and stop seeing ghosts. <sighs> That's what I'm afraid of. Ghosts and everything I, I see and do in every room and every turn. Everything around me holds a memory of him. A sweet memory one day. Penny, however sad it might be now. Angela, it's worse than sad. It's frightening. I, I don't mean that I'm afraid of Barry. It isn't that. It, but I'm afraid of myself. What will those memories and reminders do to me? How can I have his death recall to me and, and not die inside myself? You will die inside, Penny, a thousand times, but that'll change, and pretty soon you'll forget. Not Barry, but the sadness that goes with remembering him. Believe me, I went through it all with Robert. The 1947-48 season was the highest rated in radio history. I think I'll be able to get through More info. Tune into a three-part miniseries on this season. 
It begins with Breaking Walls, episode 97, on that year's Thanksgiving. if you can get through it, I don't know why I can't. I was hoping you'd say that. One major takeaway, as told by NDC's News of the World on November 25th, communist fears abounded, and the House Committee on Un-American Activities was quickly gaining steam. The House Un-American Activities Committee has jarred Hollywood to its very foundations. If the actions of the bigwigs among the movie makers is any gauge, here's W.W. Chaplin in New York. Ten movie writers and directors were laid off without pay today after being declared in contempt of Congress for refusing to tell the Un-American Activities Committee whether they are communists or no. Half a hundred ranking executives of all the major studios announced that the ten who won't talk are discharged or suspended until they are acquitted or purge themselves of contempt by swearing that they are not communists. President Eric Johnston of the Motion Picture Association announcing the suspensions said the movie companies agreed not to employ any communists knowingly in the future. Any they find already on the lots, they'll fire offhand. The meeting of the 50 top men in the industry many of whom rushed from the West Coast for the session, was in itself almost a Hollywood production in magnitude and setting. They met in one of the most luxuriously decorated and appointed suites of a Park Avenue hotel. They conferred for two days, which might indicate some original differences of opinion. But at the end, when the meeting closed today, only unanimity was disclosed. In Hollywood, the ten in contempt issued a statement saying that their bosses had been stampeded, that they will fight on for their constitutional rights. At least the ten suspended by the fifty have what satisfaction it may be that seldom have so few been fired by so many. This is W.W. Chaplin in New York. You mentioned John Brown. Now, John Brown was a very well-known character actor on radio. He played Thorny on Ozzie and Harriet, Digger O'Dell, the friendly undertaker on Life of Riley, the voice of the Brooklyn guy. Maybe that was his name, Brooklyn. No, what was his name on the Damon Runyon Theater? Do you remember that series? Uh, he was with Fred Allen, of course, also. Uh-huh. Did a lot of things in New York. He was on The Saint, the only show I ever worked with him, Leslie Charteris' radio adaptation. I think that was about 1946 sometime. And John was in that cast. And he was also Al on My Friend Irma. Yes. But he always had that high-pitched kind of, except for Digger O'Dell, which was... He could do a lot of things with that voice. He just got into those categories, I guess, because that's what they wanted. Now, how did he run afoul of those guys, the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee? I don't know how he became involved in it at all. I don't know that any of the allegations against him were ever true. But he was called to appear before the Board of Directors of AFTRA, the American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, in Hollywood. The unions felt that they should be defensive in most of this. And we had five members that came before the board to uh, tell us why they wouldn't go before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and none of them seemed able to explain it very well. John didn't show up. And I recall that Ozzie Nelson did call the union office and asked why we were picking on John. He was an integral part of the 
Ozzie and Harriet show, and they didn't want any aspersions uh, cast on themselves or on John, really. The whole thing was just so muddy because this committee was able to uh, allege almost anything it wanted to without any real proof, the sort of thing you'd have to have in court. And a lot of people were, uh, you know, it's like, when did you stop beating your wife? It's <laughs> one of those things, if they accuse you of being a red sympathizer or communist sympathizer, with or without grounds, you are tarnished. The burden was on you. That's right. And the union felt uh, the networks were bearing down on everybody. One of the people involved in the allegations was a fellow I helped him get his job at CBS, and he was a good announcer and a friend of mine. And uh, he came to my house, and we played ping pong about a week before it came out that he was involved in this. I did not have any knowledge that he was even going to be charged, and he showed up to announce a program at CBS, and they barred the door, actually, and kept him out. We, as members of the board, were not allowed to talk with our fellow members who were defending themselves. We had an attorney in the office for this, and he told us not to talk. And, uh, this young man turned to Art Gilmore and I and said that you are friends of mine. Why won't you listen to me? Why won't you help protect me? I'm innocent. We couldn't even respond to him. Well, as it turned out, he had been a member of what they called a cell, which actually existed in Armed Forces Radio. That's where he'd worked during the war. After he came out of Armed Forces Radio and went back into civilian life, he disclaimed any affiliation with any organization of that nature. But his big uh, defense, and uh, everybody's in, in those days, was the fact that the committee insisted that they name names, and uh, they refused to. That was... Uh, it's a religious belief with a lot of people, and uh, being an informer has, throughout the ages, been, uh, well, less than a rascal, at least. Mm homecoming traditions bigger than a football game. Harvard and Yale have been playing an annual game since 1875. It's so steeped in our culture that American icon Damon Runyon incorporated Yale football into a story. This story, Hold'em Yale, made it into a syndicated episode of the Damon Runyon Theater, airing out of NBC's KFI on Sunday, March 27, 1949. The show starred character actor John Brown as Broadway, Brown was born on April 4, 1904 in Yorkshire, England. He emigrated to New York and began finding work on the stage. His first radio credit was in 1932. By 1949, he was an esteemed veteran, as mentioned by interviewer John Dunning and announcer Dick Joy. The Damon Runyon Theater.
Once again, the Damon Runyon Theater brings you another story by the master storyteller, Damon Runyon. And this one, Hold'em Yale. And to tell it to you, here is Broadway. Thanks. Well, one Saturday, I am in New Haven for a very large football game between the Harvards and the Yales. And what I am doing there is something which calls for quite little explanation, because I am not a college man. Also, what happens at the football game is quite a story, a moment which I will tell to you in a minute. And now, back to the Damon Runyon Theater and the famous story, Hold'em Yale. The reason for my being at this football game goes back to one Friday night when I'm sitting in Mindy's thinking of very little except how I can get hold of a few potatoes to take care of the old overhead. And while I am sitting there, I look up and see Pete the Peddler. Pete is a ticket speculator by trade, but at the moment he seems to have something else on his mind. So I watch him for a minute. Then he spots me and comes over. Hello, Broadway. Hi, Pete. What's the news? There is no news. Say, is uh, Gigolo Georgie around any place? I do not see him. Why? I am looking for him. I see. You do not see. I do not see? He owes me 100 fish. You loan Gigolo Georgie a C-note? Eh, that is plain silly. Nobody loans Georgie anything except maybe a hit on top of his noggin. And that he does not have to pay back. True, very true. Then why are you looking for him? Tomorrow is the large football hassle between the Harvards and the Yales. You know that? I do not read the society pages. Yeah. Well, well, I give Georgie some ducats to sell at a fancy price. He takes the ducats and does a blow away. Leaving you holding the bag. But I hope soon to be holding his neck. Yeah, well... He is not in here. Do you look in the nightclubs? He is always dancing with some doll who pays for the check. Eh, he is nowhere about. I see. Well, someday I will catch up with him. Mm. Meanwhile, Broadway, how are you fixed for cash? I am in a sad state of disrepair. Okay. Come to New Haven with me and the boys tomorrow, and we will see what we can do to come honestly by a few fish. You want me to help you hustle the ducats? Sure. I figure this is quite an affair, and there will be those who need ducats. We have them, and we sell them. Slightly above the market price. <laughs> why not? As you say, why not? Okay, Pete, you have got yourself another boy. When do we start? We leave on the train tomorrow morning. And when do we come back? As soon as we get rid of the ducats. Why? Do you wish to stay in New Haven? I do not wish to stay any place that is more than five minutes away from Times Square. <laughs> what I tell Pete. But it so happens that I stay considerably longer than it takes to get rid of the tickets. And how that happens begins when I am standing in front of what is called the Yale Bowl. Now, this is no bowl at all, but is a large concrete place with no roof on it. Well, like I say, I am standing there innocently holding some ducats in my hand in case somebody wants one or two. Then the scene is as follows. Pardon me. Pardon me. Huh? Are you speaking to me, miss? Yes. Do you have the time? Time for what? Well, I mean, what time is it, please? Oh, oh, it is now uh, 2.20. Oh, oh. Is 2.20 a bad time for you? The game will start in a few minutes. 
You do not wish it to? I'll miss it. I'll miss it. Well, that is pretty tough to do, seeing as how it is right inside. But Elliot promised to meet me here with the tickets a half hour ago. Oh. Well, uh, look, uh, I have here some choice ducats for said game. I will sell you one for $10. $10? It is a bargain price, because the game is about to begin and the market is going down. I... I have only 50 cents. Well, goodbye, little miss. Goodbye. <laughs> little miss, why do you have to see the game? My... my brother plays for Yale. Oh. Football? Of course. Why? Nothing. I wish I had some money. There are plenty of us who wish the same. But how does it happen that you have none? Well, you see, I, I left Miss Peavy's school in Wooster, and all I had was the fare here. Oh, I see. No, you don't. We will not have an argument about it. I couldn't ask Miss Peavy for any because, well, because I ran away from the school. Why? It, it's rather a personal reason. Well, as far as I can see, you are in a tough spot. But I am unable to sell you a ducat for 50 cents, so goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for telling me the time. Think nothing of it. Broadway, I am looking for you. How is it going? Not good, Pete. I have four ducats left. Oh, great, great. I got one, and so has Milk Air and Nubsy Taylor. And so you are stuck with seven ducats. Yeah, that is so. Say, do I not see you talking with that little doll as I walk up? Uh-huh. Who is she? I do not know her. But she tells me a hard luck story about somebody who is named Elliot and who does not show up with her ticket for the game. Why do you not try to sell her one? Because she has got only 50 cents. Oh, oh here comes Milk Ear and Nubsy. How's the luck, boys? Milk Ear? Terrible. I still got the ducat, and from what I hear, the game is about to begin. Uh, what about you, Nubsy? There is no market for this ticket. Uh, uh, and the game is about to begin. I am stuck with seven ducats. Uh, Pete, since you are not going to get rid of these, why do you not give one to the little miss, huh? Uh, the one I see you talking to? Sure. Look at it. She is still crying. Eh, it is a hard luck story. Dolls always have a hard luck story. It is part of their character. No, I, I do not think this one is putting on the bike. Why not? Well, she says she comes from Worcester. And dolls with hard luck stories always come from San Francisco. Because the fair is somewhat larger. Hmm, that is true. But I think I got a better idea. What is that? Look, boys. I hustled ducats for many years now. But I never see one of these games. So I think I would like to. How about you, Milky? Me? Nah. Do you ever see one? Nah. Nubsy, how about you? This is the closest I ever get to one, and I do not think I wish to get closer. I often wish to see why suckers pay such high prices for ducats. Now is our chance. I wish to go back to New York. Broadway, there is no train until late this afternoon. We are stuck here? So we might as well see the football game. Well, it is an idea. So, come on. Now, wait a minute, Pete. What about the little doll? Uh, let us see. Come on, boys. Get your scoop covers here. Get your pom-pom scoop covers here. Uh, pardon us, little miss. Oh, yes. What is it? My friend here just tells me that you are hung out on the line. I I'm what? He means I tell him that you are going to miss the game due to the fact that Elliot is not here. Yes, that's right. Well, look, uh, I happen to have seven ducats. We will take you in with us. Uh, that is, if you wish to accompany us. You, you mean you'll really take me in? That is what he says, little miss. Oh, I, I don't know what to say. Just yes or no. Yes, and thank you. Then it's settled. Are you Yale or Harvard men? <laughs> is that funny, Milk here? It is. 
<laughs> I guess it is at that. <laughs> okay, okay, let us go. So we all start to walk to the place where we go in. And the little doll is so happy about seeing the game, she is bubbling over. In fact, she is so glad about it that she makes the rest of us real happy that we are able to do the favor for her. She has big blue eyes and turns them on Nubsy Taylor, who is more than somewhat fond of dolls, no matter what color eyes they got. Then she smiles at Milky, and I see that he is going to take the count. Even Pete the Peddler is getting soft as he listens to her while we walk along. I can't tell you how sweet you are. Why, I think I'd have died if I'd missed the kickoff. Kickoff? They are going to rub somebody out in there? I think I am beginning to like football. How can you tell when you are not even inside yet? They speak our language. <laughs> I like you. I'd be really happy if Elliot were here. Look, little miss, who is this Elliot that you talk about? He's my... I... Well, can I trust you? Now, that is a foolish question. Shut up, Broadway. Hey, go on, little miss. Who is Elliot? My fiancé. He... Father hates him. As a matter of fact, Elliot and I are going to elope after the game. After? Is football more important? My brother's playing today for Yale. You say your father hates this Elliot. Why? Because, well, because he thinks Elliot is, well, he thinks Elliot's after my money. Oh, you have money? Only what my uncle left me. Just a few fish, huh? Fish? Dollars. Oh, yes, he left me a million dollars. <laughs> no care, no care. Better be careful how you eat those peanuts. And make her stop talking like that. Well, you know, something tells me this Elliot citizen is no dope. I can't imagine why he didn't show up when he said he would. That is something that bothers me, too. Now. But I won't miss the game after all. Oh, you're all so wonderful to me. I feel as though I'd known you all my life. Uh-huh. It seems we now all have something in common. Broadway, there is nothing common about a million potatoes. Oh, look, here's our entrance. Let's hurry. The kickoff's the best part of the game. Eh, not where we come from. What? Eh, nothing. Eh, let us go in. Huh? You know, Pete, something tells me we better not see this game. Why not? I just got a feeling, that's all. Eh, come on. You'll love it. Here, little miss, take my arm and we will you... go in in style. Here is another arm for you. Oh, you're all so wonderful. You must be important men. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, let us go in. Nubsy, Nukir, Broadway, we are now going to college. go inside what is called the Yale Boat, and it is crowded with people. I cannot believe that so many citizens would sit out in the open to watch the Harvards and the Yales. But we take our seats, and the scene is as follows. Look at all the suckers. Oh, oh, if I only had the ticket concession. Are all these people in here just to see football? Look, look, there's my brother. See him? Way over there. I see nothing but a lot of Indians in blankets. <laughs> Silly, that's the Harvard team, and... Oh, we're on the wrong side. Wrong side? What do you mean? Well, don't you see, Broadway? Look around us. I am. I see more people than there are in Times Square on New Year's Eve. We're on the enemy's side. Enemy? We got enemies here? We will keep our backs together and go down fighting. Little miss, what are you talking about? This is the Harvard side. We are not for Harvards? Oh, no. You've got to root for Yale. We do? Of course. I'm for Yale. Don't you want to be? If you are, we are. Nubsy? Milky, Yale it is. I am now a Yale man. If that is the way we got it, that is the way we got it. Hooray for Yale! Hooray! <laughs> oh, you're just immense. Oh, look, the teams are coming out on the field. 
Hey, how do you like this little doll? She has leather lungs. Say, how many guys play this game? It is practically a gang war. Hey, you guys, take a look around us. What is the matter? I do not like the way the citizens in our immediate vicinity are eyeing our little doll. Yeah, they do not seem to be in favor of the Yales. Oh, I am not prepared for this. No rascal, no nothing. I know now we should go back to New York where there is peace and quiet. Nothing doing. The little doll is our guest. We do not walk out on a guest. The only hope we are able to walk out. They're lining up for the kickoff. Ah, this is what I am waiting to see. Stand up, stand up, boys. Stand up. I do not know why, but stand up. There it goes. <laughs> This kid is a born mobster. She is bloodthirsty. Look at what is happening down there. It is a free-for-all. Boys, if we do that in New York, the gendarmes will throw us in the clink. What happens then? Harvard's ball, first and ten on the 25. Oh, I see. Do you? No. Hug up that hole in the line! Hold him, yeah! Look! One of the guys in the blue shirts is rubbed out. He was knifed because I did not hear a shot. He'll be all right. He's got to be all right. He has only a slim chance the way I see it. There are two tons on top of him. Look, he's getting up. Anna boy, kill him! And she is so young. Hold him, Dale! Hold him! I wonder how long this goes on. From the looks of it until they are all wiped out. Hey, Pete, look. We are getting some dirty looks from the Harvards around us. They do not like the way our little doll is screaming for the Yales. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Broadway, it looks like we might have some trouble. <laughs> well, well, it makes for an interesting afternoon. The Damon Runyon Theater was one of Alan Ladd's Mayfair productions. Ladd was an admirer of the late Runyon's long-running Brighter Side newspaper column. Damon Runyon had passed away on December 10, 1946. He'd spun fascinating tongue-in-cheek tales of gamblers, actors, gangsters, and beautiful women. He gave his characters colorful names, like Harry the Horse Thief, Good Time Charlie, and the Lemon Drop Kid. Ladd tapped John Brown to play Broadway. Brown was already playing a similar character on My Friend Irma. The transcribed Damon Runyon Theater first aired over the independent station KSEL in Lubbock, Texas. Because it was a syndicated show, it wasn't beholden to network lines. It aired over NBC's KFI in Los Angeles beginning in January of 1949. The following June, it began airing over Mutual's WOR in New York. Supporting Brown were Hollywood radio regulars like Herb Vigran, Jack Moyles, William Conrad, Gerald Moore, and Ann Whitfield. Richard Sandfield directed. 52 shows were produced on records. And now, back to the Damon Runyon Theater and the famous story, Hold'em Yale. Well, that is the way it goes. The Harvards and the Yales go running up and down the grass, knocking each other from here to next Sunday. And our little doll keeps up a steady fire. In fact, she can yell about as loud as anybody I ever hear, male or female. And we keep getting dirty looks from the Harvards in our neighborhood. Then the little doll mentions that she is chilly, and Nubsy and Milky had disappeared during what the doll says is a timeout. Then they come back, 
and the scene is as follows. Here you are, little miss. Put this robe around you. Oh, thank you. I have got a thermos jug of coffee for you. Why, why that's wonderful. Uh, boys, where did you get those robes and things? We find them. Yeah, we find them. How? The hard way. But what is the difference? Little miss, do you have a mink coat? Well, yes. Why? See, Nubsy, I am right. We would have carried it over for nothing. What has happened? Time's back in. Oh, we've got to score. We've just got to. How'd the matter stand now, little miss? Scoreless tie and, and only three minutes to go. Little miss, you say that citizen who fires the gun is just the timekeeper? Well, that's right. Why? It just makes me nervous, that's all. I figure he's going to hurt somebody. Come on, Yale! Come on! Hey, why don't you go over to the Yale side? Mind your own business! Yeah, yeah. Hold on, Yale! You... you... <laughs> that's a great comeback. Yale's better than Harvard any day in the week. Except on Saturday, which is today. <laughs> you wouldn't say that to my friends here. Are they for Yale, too? Yes. Well, then tell them to go over to the Yale side. We've got seats here, and we'll stay. Isn't that right, Pete? That is right. So there. So there. <laughs> and they look exactly as I'd expect you, old man, to look. Especially the one with the broken nose. He means me. And the other one. Where'd he get that ear? He is talking about my ear, and I am sensitive about that. I guess we better spread out, boys. Now, wait a minute, Pete. We are surrounded. Do we let them talk that way about us? Oh, look, look! What is happening now? One of the characters in the red shirts is all by himself. Look at that boy run. Go on, boy, go on! All the way, all the way! He runs faster than Harry the horse the night the gendarmes went to ask him a few questions. Get him! Why don't that citizen with the rod take a shot at him? Little miss, is this bad? He's going for a touchdown. Is that good? No, no, we'll lose, we'll lose. He's over! He's over! Oh, no, no, Yale lost. There's no more time left. I do not know what happens, but I gather that it is all bad, eh, miss? Oh, it's terrible. Come on, let's get those goalposts! Come on, you Harvard men, let's get those goalposts! What does he say? They're going to take our goalposts. What is that? Look, don't let them take them. I would not give you eight cents for them. You don't understand. They mustn't have the goalposts. What good those posts will be after they get them is a mystery to me. Well, I'm not going to let them do it. Come on, Yale, come on! Hey, where is she going? Search me, but she is heading for the field. She does not want the Harvards to take the goalposts. Pete, let us get out of here. Wait, Broadway. Are we going to stand by and watch the Harvards do something the little doll does not wish them to do? I do not like the crack that guy makes about my nose. And I am still sensitive about my ear. It uh, just so happens I have a dollar's worth of nickels rolled up in paper in case I get in a fight. A dollar's worth of nickels in a guy's fist makes him a pretty tough customer. As a matter of fact, I have a roll of nickels. It's a funny thing, but after feeling around in my pockets, I have two. Then why do we stand here while the little doll is down there? Let us go. No, wait, wait. We are only four of us. I do not care. I wish to look for the citizen who makes the crack about my nose. I think I will give him one like it. We will fight for the honor of the Yale. I do not go to Yale. I never wish to go to Yale. I do not care to defend the honor of Yale. But it is for our little dog. But I... Oh, that is different. Let us go. So we go down to the field and get to where the goalposts are. By this time, there are several thousand Harvards tugging at the posts, and I figured the odds are pretty heavy. 
But then I see that a little doll climbs up and is now sitting on the crossbar screaming at the harvest. Don't you dare! Don't you dare take these posts! Get out or we'll take you with them! You're cowards! You fight a lady! Well, there's some doubt about that! Mr. Look, you hear the little lady? Do not shake her down from there! Oh, it's you, huh? And your friend. For the last time, do not shake the little lady down. <laughs> no? Here, watch. Mister, do not do it. The little doll up there does not wish you to. Oh, you're in it too, huh? Well, look, I never did like derbies. Oh, I think yours would look much better down over your face. Pete, get me out of this hat. Let me out that guy. Pull up my hat so I can see. This is the <laughs> end of peaceful talk. Here we go. Keep your backs to the post, boys, and let's go. Well, about this time, one of the Harvards, who is nine feet tall, reaches over six other guys and hits me on the chin. While I am going through the air, two other guys punch me when I am unable to defend myself. By the time I pick myself up, I am pretty well out of the way of everybody and have a chance to see what is going on. And what I see is Nubsy, Milkier, and Pete battling the Harvards. Nubsy's derby is still down over his ears, but he punches a hole in it so he can see, and he is swinging right and left. But the odds are too heavy. I run back into the battle, and the scene is as follows. So, so this is college? I am having trouble breathing through this derby. We cannot hold out much longer. I am not so tired of getting in as I am of getting up off the ground. I never figured these college boys are so good. Hold it, fellas! Hold it! Look, look, these are game guys. Even if they do go to Yale. What do you say we call it quits, huh? Okay, okay, keep your goalposts. Anybody who puts up that good a fight deserves them. Please, help me down. Come on. Nubsy, how are you? I will never wear another derby as long as I live. If I live. Nubsy, look, my other ear, the good one. Yeah, now both sides of your head will match. Oh, you wonderful, wonderful man. I could kiss each one of you. I think nothing of it. Yale won't forget this. Neither will we. Does anybody see my shirt? I... Oh, look. Are they coming back? Oh, no, it... it's Elliot. Elliot, here I am. Elliot, darling. Wait, wait, that guy, Elliot. I want you to meet him. He's a Yale man. Yale he... man? Patricia, a... darling, are you all right? Oh, yes, but if it hadn't been for these wonderful men, I... Hey, Chigolo, Georgie, you dirty little... Pete, now listen, you... Elliot, what's the matter? Stand back, little miss. There is going to be a body going through the air. So you're Elliot, eh? Now listen, Pete, Chigolo, I... Georgie, and you're going to take this little doll for a ride. You're going to elope with her. What's the matter? You calling him George? Goodbye! I hope the exit is open! Goodbye! Take care of the little doll boys. I'm going to take care of Gigolo Georgie. Elliot! Come back! <laughs> I do not think he will come back. From the way he is going, he will slow down only when he crosses the state line. <laughs> From the way Pete is going, I say Georgie will not make the state line. <laughs> he does not even make it to the goal line. Oh, the, the coward! Why doesn't he stand up and fight? Little miss, maybe you better turn your head. I will not. He's running from only one man, and, and you, you stood up against hundreds. I hate him. I hate him. Well, you change your mind suddenly. Come on, we'll find my father and I'll go home. Yeah, there's no use waiting for Pete. He will be busy for quite a while.
Well, after Pete takes care of Gigolo Georgie, we take the young doll to the railroad station where she says she is going back to Miss Peavy's school in Worcester. We put her on the train, and then we patch ourselves up and go back to New York. And I am very glad indeed to see it. Then I do not see Pete, Nubsy, or Milky for quite some time. In fact, it is a year later. And what happens then is the payoff, which I will tell you in a minute. see the boys again. It happens that I am out of potatoes, and when I look in the paper, I see that the Harvards and the Yales are going to play another game. So I figure I will help Pete hustle ducats. I mosey over to the terminal where I think I will see Pete, and sure enough, there he is. He sees me, and the scene is as follows. Well, 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 Broadway. I do not see you for a long time. How are you? I am fine. And how are you, Pete? Great. Just great. Hey, what are you doing here? You are going someplace? Well, I figured that maybe you will be hustling ducats again this year, and maybe you need another boy? Well, it is true that we are going to see the Harvards and the Yales do it again, but uh, <laughs> I am not hustling ducats. You are not? But you are going to the game. So is Nubsy and Milky. In, uh, in fact, here they come now. What? What is that Nubsy has got on his head? A hat. But it is not his usual derby. <laughs> no. Hello, Broadway. Hiya, Nubs. Milky. Hello, Broadway. <laughs> what is that you are carrying, Milky? It is what is called a pennant. It has got Yale printed on it. <laughs> I do not understand. The little doll's father is so grateful that we pry Gigolo Georgie away that he invites us to the game in his private box. That right, boys? That is right. And I am wearing a soft hat. Uh, not that I expect trouble. This year there will be no trouble. We are sitting with the Yales. Sure. <laughs> now we're all together, boys. Let us do it again. Okay. One, two, three. Bola, 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 hold them, yeah. <laughs> And so ends the famous Damon Runyon story, Hold'em Yale. Listen in again next week for... The Damon Runyon Theater. Unfortunately for John Brown, just as TV was coming in and his career was cresting, trouble was around the corner. The Damon Runyon Theater with John Brown as Broadway is directed by Richard Sandville and the story is adapted for radio by Russell Hughes. Vern Carstensen is in charge of production. This is a Mayfair production. How much of Miss Brooks was an extension of the film work you had done earlier? You had played a lot of um, similar kinds of roles before the show came along, didn't you? Well, not really similar. You know, I think when people know you as a personality, they are inclined to attach parts of that personality to everything you play. 
Actually, I did a lot of pictures that were kind of off the beaten path. I did Doe Girls, in which I played a Russian, and I played Night and Day, and played a French actress in that. Dark at the top of the stairs? Dark at the top of the stairs. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that were quite far. I think Miss Brooks was closer to being an extension of me than anything. I can't explain that too well, except that when I grew up, I knew a lot of teachers. They were friends of my aunt's, and I think that had a lot to do with what Miss Brooks became. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, most of us have already made our plans for celebrating Thanksgiving. But Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, hadn't given it much thought up until last Friday morning when she sat down to breakfast with her landlady. Well, it's only six more days till Thanksgiving, Mrs. Davis. I can hardly believe it, Connie. A whole year has gone by since last Thanksgiving. Isn't it awful? The years do that every year. (laughs) It seems like yesterday that I was preparing our last Thanksgiving dinner. We didn't have very much money to spend on our shopping, but we celebrated just the same. Oh, I'll never forget that meal, Mrs. Davis. A whole roast stuffed pepper. (laughs) I feel very badly about not being able to spend Thanksgiving with you this year, Connie, but I've accepted an invitation from my sister, Angela. Oh, that's all right, Mrs. Davis. I'd ask you to join me at her place, but she hasn't been at all well lately. So we're just having the immediate family, my brother Victor and myself. Oh, poor Angela. It seems the older she gets, the more absent-minded she gets. Yes, you've mentioned it to me, Mrs. Davis. Lately, she's been worse than ever. Why, sometimes she can be talking right along and suddenly, right in the middle of a sentence... Yes? (laughs) Right in the middle of a sentence? Right in the middle of a sentence. Right in the middle of a sentence what? Right in the middle of a sentence what, what? (laughs) You've been seeing a little too much of Angela. Angela She's your brother Victor's absent-minded sister But don't worry about my holiday, Mrs. Davis I'll get my pearly teeth into something on Thanksgiving Day How about Mr. Boynton? (laughs) Yum, yum Oh, you mean spending the day with him Well, he hasn't asked me as yet But I'll toss him a hint at school today I'm certain that he'll invite you out, Connie, and then you can be sure of your turkey and all the trimmings. I don't know about the turkey, but if Mr. Boynton and I eat out, I'm a cinch to take my usual trimming. (laughs) Does Mr. Boynton always insist on going Dutch, Connie? I wouldn't say that, Mrs. Davis. It's just a coincidence that I'm buying him a pair of wooden shoes for Christmas. (laughs) Oh, but why worry about it now? As Madison's star athlete Stretch Snodgrass told me in English class the other day, live good in the present, the future never done nothing to nobody. (laughs) Oh, Stretch is a nice kid, though. He seemed genuinely concerned about my spending Thanksgiving alone. He told me he would have asked me to his home, but his folks are going out of town for the weekend with the Dentons. 
Oh, that must be Walter now. He's driving me down to school. Coming, Walter. I'll clear off the table and get started on the dishes, Connie. Say hello to Walter for me. All right, Mrs. Davis. Come on in, Walter. I step over this threshold with fear and trepidation. <laughs> what do you mean? I am the editor-in-chief of the Madison Monitor. True? True. Well, I made the mistake of letting Stretch Snodgrass set up some of the type yesterday. And he sneaked an item into the personal column that cannot but be a source of great mortification to someone very near and dear to both our hearts. Who? You. <laughs> me? None other. I brought a copy with me. Uh, look at this paragraph, Miss Brooks. Let's see it. To who it may concern. That's stretch, all right. <laughs> it says, It is pitiful to be alone on Thanksgiving Day. If there is one way how people should show their real Thanksgivingness, it is by sharing their dinner with some poor, unfortunate fellow human person who is alone. <laughs> Without mentioning any names. Oh, well, that's a relief. Keep reading. <laughs> Without mentioning any names, if somebody wants to share his or her meal with this lonely human person, all you have to do is walk up and say, you can have Thanksgiving dinner with me, Miss Brooks. <laughs> well, Miss Brooks, isn't that awful? Are you going to punish Stretch? I'm not making any snap judgments, Walter. First, let's see if this ad brings any results. <laughs> Excuse me, Miss Brooks, but I'd like to talk to you before you go into your classroom. I think that might be arranged, Mr. Boynton. I, uh, I just read this rather peculiar notice in the school paper, and I wonder... Oh, that's a little prank that Stretch played on me, Mr. Boynton. Just pay a lot of attention to it. <laughs> when I read it, Miss Brooks, I made up my mind I'd be the first one to talk to you about it. Really? How nice, Mr. Boynton. Oh, it, it isn't easy to be alone on Thanksgiving, on a holiday. No, you're so right. Many's the Thanksgiving dinner I've eaten alone. But when I saw that notice in the paper, I said to myself, by George Philip Boynton. I didn't know your name was George Philip Boynton. <laughs> it is, and that's just an expression I use. As I was saying, I said to myself, this is one Thanksgiving you don't have to eat alone. Now, oh... What I, I want to ask you isn't easy for me, Miss Brooks. Maybe I can help. I promise not to order anything over a dollar fifty. Please continue. Since I saw that paragraph in the monitor, I wondered if, well, if I'll make it a dollar even, and I'll leave the tip. <laughs> Please, Mister Boynton, just ask me what you want to. All right, I, I will. Good, Miss Brooks. If that notice brings you more than one invitation to dinner, could I make use of the extra one? By November of 1950, Our Miss Brooks was entrenched as one of CBS Radio's top shows. In the winter of 1949, Motion Picture Daily named Eve Arden Radio's best comedienne. Her sharp wit helped make her an honorary member of the National Education Association. 
The show's rating remained strong even as audiences were leaving for TV. It cracked radio's top 40 in 1950, top 30 in 1951, and top 20 in 1952. This episode, which aired on Sunday, November 19, 1950 at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, was heard by roughly 13 million people. Gail Gordon was no stranger to working with top-notch comedians. He worked with both Eve Arden and Lucille Ball. Working with Lucy was a joy, but also working with Eve Arden was. I've been very, very lucky, and the people that I've worked with have all been very inspiring people, very, very capable and talented, and very nice people. And I consider that one of the mm-hmm. greatest glories of this profession, is having known so many people who were real people, really good, good people, as well as being talented and delightful. It was Miss Brooks that virtually the entire cast of the radio version of Our Miss Brooks moved to television, didn't it? That's right. The entire cast, with the exception of Jeff Chandler, who became a movie star during the radio run of Our Miss Brooks. And when we moved over into television, Universal wouldn't let him appear in the television show because he was signed to star with Universal Pictures. Mm-hmm. And that was when they got Bob Rockwell, yeah. a mm-hmm. dear, dear mm-hmm. sweet man, yes. Jeff Chandler was Philip Boynton, Dick Crenna played Walter Denton, and Gloria McMillan was Harriet Conklin. Up to that point, I was a freelance mm-hmm. actress, and I did just lots of radio shows, lots and lots, hundreds of radio shows. I did Mayor of the Town with Lionel Barrymore and Agnes Moorhead, and just on and on. But then when I was lucky enough to be cast in Brooks, that was a career, because we did the radio show, and then we were... When the television show came along, we were doing the television and the radio show at the same time for a while. And then we did a motion picture at Warner Brothers of Armis Brooks. So it was a full time. And I was very lucky, very, very lucky to be a part of that. When you started, of course, you had no idea that it would go on for oh, so gosh, many no, years. No. Were you hired on a, a 13 week or a 39 week basis at the beginning or for the season? It was just for kind of loose as I remember. (laughs) I think they were checking it out to see if it was going to go or whatever, but I did not sign a contract, no, so they could have let me go at any time. I did sign a contract with CBS when the television show happened and I was so lucky because they just said, when the television show starts, we're all going to go together. And I think that was Eve's doing because I think we had become a family really. Mr. Conklin? Yes, Miss Brooks. Uh, Sit down, won't you please? Take this leather chair by my desk. That's it. Are you nice and comfy? Yes, sir. I'm fine, but how are you? (laughs) Splendid, thanks. This is the time of year when we should all be imbued with the true Thanksgiving spirit. That's why I've summoned you to my office, Miss Brooks, to tell you that in spite of the inconveniences you have wreaked upon me, I harbor no ill will. Well, that's very nice to hear, Mr. Conklin. I have been a source of annoyance to you on occasion, I suppose, but I I am thankful for everything that's happened to me in the past year. Take the time you dropped that typewriter on my toes. (laughs) I just give thanks that it didn't land higher and fracture my whole foot. (laughs) That 
was careful of me, wasn't it? <laughs> then when I think back to the time you stepped on my eyeglasses and crushed them, I give thanks that they weren't on my nose at the time. <laughs> but my main purpose in calling you here is to inform you that I have read the notice in this morning's monitor. Oh, that's just a joke, Mr. Conklin. It was written by one of the pupils in my English class. Yes, I could tell from its construction. <laughs> However, I want you to know, Miss Brooks, that I was quite touched by that item. The more so since I, too, will be all alone this Thanksgiving. But what about your daughter and Mrs. Conklin? They're spending the day with Harriet's grandmother, my wife's dear mother. We asked her to join us for the holiday, but she lives almost 100 miles away, and she thinks she's got high blood pressure or something. So nothing would do but that Harriet and Martha visit her. Bless her crotchety old hide. <laughs> but why aren't you going along? What? Me make a trip like that with my blood pressure? The doctor has absolutely forbidden it. In any event, when I read that notice, Miss Brooks, a thought occurred to me which might make Thanksgiving more enjoyable for both of us. Both of us? Yes, yes. Since we're both going to be alone, I'd like to ask you... Uh, that is, I wonder if you'd... What I have to say isn't easy for me, Miss Brooks. Maybe I can help. I promise not to order anything over a dollar fifty. <laughs> Loneliness can do more to undermine a person's morale than almost anything. And, well, if you'd... Uh, that is, if, if possible... I'll make it a dollar and I'll leave the tip. <laughs> oh, please don't misunderstand, Miss Brooks. What I want to ask you is... Well, if that notice brings you more than one invitation, could I make use of the extra one? Why should you be an exception? Oh, of course, Mr. Conklin. Now, if you'll excuse me, sir, I've got to get to my classroom. Oh, very well, you may go. Be sure and keep me apprised of all results, Miss Brooks. Yes, sir, I'm sure we'll be pelted with turkey dinners. Spirit of Thanksgiving. Are you comfy, Miss Brooks? Take this chair, Miss Brooks, of all the... Hi, Miss Brooks. I see that you just came out of Daddy's office. Is he very disgruntled this morning? No, Harriet, he's not gruntling any louder than usual. He does seem a bit put out at having to eat Thanksgiving dinner alone. Oh, but he's not going to. Grandmother's coming down to our place after all. We're going to surprise Daddy. Oh, that should do it. <laughs> he's so sentimental about holidays. Now he'll be able to do his Thanksgiving carving just like always. It'll be loads of fun. I've already invited Walter Denton over. Good. I can't think of anyone your father would rather carve. <laughs> I know he's not crazy about Walter, but during the holiday season, Daddy's always a little more mellow. I'm going to do some of the shopping today. Mother gave me $5 for a turkey. That doesn't seem like much, Harriet. How big a turkey are you planning on getting? Oh, just a nice eight-pounder. But will that be enough to go around? Mr. Boynton's a pretty big eater, you know. Mr. Boynton? But he'll be eating with you, won't he? He certainly will. And at what better place could he join me for Thanksgiving dinner than in the warm confines of your cozy dining room? Well, I would like to invite you both, Miss Brooks, but I've only got this five dollars. That's all Mother said to spend. Tell you what, Harriet. Give me the five dollars, and I'll see that we get a big enough turkey for all of us. Well, if you really want to come, Miss Brooks, I'd certainly like to have you, and I'm sure Mother would, too. But there have been times when you and Daddy... Don't you see, Harriet, if Walter's coming, you'll be doing your Daddy a good turn by inviting me. Why, how do you mean, Miss Brooks? With both of us there, we'll be an antidote for each other. <laughs> 
brush your teeth with Colgate. Colgate in the fall of 1952, Our Miss Brooks would move into TV, but it wasn't without its issues. Number one, they didn't want to take Dick Crenna into TV. They asked me to make tests with some boys, and I said, what for? And they said, for Walter Denton. I said, you're crazy. People know Dick, and they said he's too old. I said, but he doesn't look it. He doesn't sound it, and they'll love him. So they pressured me to make the test, and I said, I'll do it if you make a test of Dick, too. And there was no question after that. Then they came to me partway through and said, we're going to make a big change. Just keep you and Gail Gordon, that's all. And we're going to send you to Hollywood. I said, it's not going to work. And I bet I have my people back in three months. And I did. Mm -hmm. And it was a shame, but that spoiled it. They changed it from a uh, public school to a private school. Yes. And, uh, yes. From a high school to a grammar school. And it never and recovered yeah. from that. That was really the reason we went off the air. And it's a shame. lunch period arrived, as luck and I would have it, Mr. Boynton brought his tray right to my table in the cafeteria. In spite of the fact that he had a nice lunch before him, he didn't begin eating, but sat with his fork poised and stared into my eyes with a deep and absorbing emotion. It was a terribly romantic moment, as Mr. Boynton leaned across the table and in a voice choked with passion said, Get any extra invites to Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> fork out of my cottage cheese. I'm sorry. I was just wondering about that notice in the monitor. Well, you can forget about the notice, Mr. Boynton. I've wangled us both an invitation to join the Conklins for the holiday. Oh, say, that's wonderful. Mrs. Conklin's a fine cook. There's only one catch. We've got exactly five dollars with which to buy a turkey that'll feed six people. Well, how in the world are we going to do that, Miss Brooks? You and I can chip in another five dollars between us. There must be some other way. Well, there isn't. Not unless I put up the entire amount, and I can't unless I pawn my earrings again. Oh, but Miss Brooks... I wouldn't care if I hadn't had my ears pierced. You have no idea how drafty my lobes get in November. For more information on our Miss Brooks... Tune into Breaking Walls, episode 106. A good-sized young turkey, very reasonably. How? By merely eliminating the butcher. What do we do, buy the turkey from his parents? <laughs> Don't you see, Miss Brooks, we have to go after a live turkey. Well, they're much cheaper than in the stores. Why, we can probably pick one up for even less than five. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? 
Gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother, that villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Actually, I started going down to the studio with my father when I had my learner's permit. He went down Sunday. We lived in Pacific Palisades. It was about a 20-mile drive down to Hollywood, down to the big Canex studios on Hollywood Boulevard. Now they've been turned into uh, the CBS television studios when radio went out. But then I uh, would drive him down and stay with him the whole day while they got the show ready to go on the air during the week. I enjoyed being down there, and I think he was kind of hoping that I, the business showbiz bug would bite. It just never quite took. Many actors and actresses don't wish that for their children. It's kind of a, a reversal of what you normally hear. Well, my grandmother and grandfather were both in the acting business, and so uh, I guess he was hoping that it would pass on to the next generation. He was born literally in a trunk was on the stage by the time he was a year and a half old, was out in front selling theater bills for $5 a week when he was around eight years old. So he came from a long line. You say he was born literally in a trunk? How did that take place? On stage in a trunk when uh, my grandma and grandpa were on the road. They played in Virginia City, Piper's Opera House. They were in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake. So that was before he was born, but later they were still performing long after he was born. And also his brother was in show business, Edwin Bailey. He produced Truth or Consequences all the time it was on the air. He left Chicago to come out here under contract for 20th Century Fox. And he worked for 20th Century Fox, I guess, for a couple of years. During the war years, he was there. Then he went on to the radio to do Let George Do It, which he played George Valentine. He did that on Don Lee, wasn't it? Don Lee Network? KHJ. That was what it's, the call letters were, KHJ, and that was downtown. All the big radio stations were within about a four-block area, downtown Hollywood. Bob Bailey was born on June 13, 1913, in Toledo, Ohio. He became a Chicago radio regular before signing with 20th Century Fox in 1943. He moved to Hollywood, appearing in seven films, including two with Laurel and Hardy. In 1946, he returned to radio as the lead in Let George Do It. Francis Robinson was his secretary, Claire Brooks, and Eddie Firestone was Sonny. The show originally aired Fridays at 8 p.m. from KHJ as part of Mutual's Pacific Network of Donnelly stations. 
George Valentine obtained cases with a newspaper ad. He was cerebral, only resorting to brawn when necessary. The supporting cast featured Hollywood radio regulars, like Virginia Gregg, who later played Brooksy. Did you freelance most of the time through this period? Well, in uh, radio days, yeah, that's what you did. I was doing as high as five shows a day, but I did mm -hmm. Brooksy with Bob Bailey. And uh, let George do it. Yeah, and I also did... You worked with him on Johnny Dollar, too, I think, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, I did. The November 20th, 1950 episode was called Cause for Thanksgiving. It featured Wally Mayer, Tony Barrett, and Alan Reed. Personal notice, dangers my stock trade. If the job's too tough for you to handle, you've got a job for me, George Valentine. Write full details. Standard Oil Company of California, on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West, invites you to Let George Do It. Cause for Thanksgiving, another adventure of George Valentine. Is that you? Well, it's not Tom Turkey. Listen, my friend. You sure it's not? What's that ten-year-old stuff? Hey, you've been jumping the gun on the cranberry sauce. All right, all right, all right. I'll say it straight. I'm phoning on behalf of a little boy ten years old. Well, that's better. No, it's not. It's worse. Said little boy could no more write you a letter than he could hope to joke. I doubt if he can write. What's the matter? He can't talk either. Huh? You heard me. I said he can't talk. Oh, I don't mean there's anything wrong with him, or maybe there is, I don't know, but... Look, Valentine, get over here, will you, right away to my house? Well, sure. But I warn you, friend, this little boy never heard of Thanksgiving. If you're going to help him, you'd better bring your brass knuckles. Lieutenant. Oh, Mrs. Riley's got him in there trying to coax him to eat. But the only time he'll take a bite is when she's turned her back. Oh, is he? Where'd you get him? <sighs> One of the boys in my department picked him up early this morning at 3 a.m. on the waterfront, the warehouse lane. Oh, I see. A little on the tough side, huh? Oh, they all are down there, like a bunch of dirty seagulls and scavengers running loose. We can't even find out who he belongs to. Maybe nobody. And only ten years old. Listen... This sergeant of mine in a squad car nearly runs him down. See, the kid was racing across the empty street, not even looking. Well, Mike gets out to help, naturally. The kid wasn't hurt, but he swung on him. He tried to get away, scared to death, and clawed and scratched. And then Mike realized the kid wasn't talking. Not a sound. Now, that's the part I don't get. Clear it up, will you, Riley? Well, Mike couldn't even find out where he lives, so he brought him in. My friends, that boy hasn't spoken one single solitary word since. Hardly a noise out of him. 
Oh, except maybe to cry a little. Only he stops that when you look at him. But, Lieutenant, he's probably a mute. Oh, two doctors were out from juvenile hall to look at him. One of them said the kid's faking, but they both agree there's nothing wrong with his vocal cords. What's the other doctor say? Psychic shock. Oh, you mean he can't talk because of something that happened to him? Well, they're not sure. They say it'll take time to be sure. I've arranged for the hall to take him over to try to find his family, if there is one, to feed him and... But that takes time, like you say, days, weeks. Now, now you get it, pal. And the doc says it'll help him a lot better if we could work fast. Because the most likely thing is that last night he saw something. Was mixed up in something that scared the blue blazes out of him, and he was running away. A little before 3 a.m. last night, I saw something. Yeah, but what? Nothing happened down there. Nothing was reported. My department can't just go bursting into a... Huh? Well, hello there, Sally. Hello. You finally ate something, did you? Such big eyes. He listens, but he doesn't listen. Yeah. Come on in here, son. Come on. These are friends of mine, see? Ah, now, wait a minute. Don't jump like that. I'm not going to bite you. Come on in here Skip and... It, Riley. What time is it? Huh? Um, 1.45, George. Oh, good. Hey, uh, look, kid, uh, how about coming with me? I've got an extra ticket to the big football game. Oh, I'll get you to meet Big Mike Muralewski, the All-American. Maybe you can even sit on the bench with the team, huh? George, he's just more frightened. He's crying. Hey, you see... You can't get him interested in anything. But a boy in a football game? I think the doctor's... Oh, it's Thanksgiving. I mean, a kid belongs in somebody's home on Thanksgiving. Well, are you going to just sit there, Valentine? I know, Softy. I know. We've got work to do and fast. Come on, Brooke. Take the kid's hand. We're going to go straight at this. At the waterfront. Funny your freight is tied up, but no people. Ship chambers. You must have spent some time around there, haven't you, kid? How about the candy store? You're wasting your time, George. It just seems to get more and more tense. Yeah. Well, this is where he was picked up, right here. Oh, relax, honey. Don't just sit there Running and look... from right to left, so he must have come from this way. Okay, let's move on a little. Cobblestones by the empty warehouse, huh? George, look at him. This direction, all right. George, look out for that boy in the street. He's right on the right side of the street, Jack Nolz. Oh, lovely neighborhood. I wonder if that boy would know anything about our friend here. Hey, that's an idea. Wait a second. Hey, you, Shorty. Oh, you want to argue about it? Yeah, Jack Nolz. Come here, you. Hey, let go of me. Hey, 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 Shorty. Shorty, wait. George, George, come here. I'm having an awful time. Hold Oh, look, kid. Kid, stop it, will you? He wants to run, too, George. Yeah, now easy. That's better. Yeah, he'll get away from us if I try to catch up with that shorty. Look, Brooksy, look. There's a settlement house over there. Murphy's, you know him. Take the kid over there and wait for me, will you? Sure, George. Maybe they'll know something about it. I doubt it. 3 a.m. last night. But farther out there in the pier is where it happened, whatever it was. So me, I'm going to take it on foot by myself. Shorty, I got you this time. Get your paws off, Jim. No, Cut it out. Now, cut it out. I just want to ask you something. Ah. 
You know that other kid I had back in the car there? You know his name? I've never seen him before. I ain't done nothing. What's your name? I don't know. Let go. You kids running loose out here by the ships last night? I was up on the moon eating cheese. Let me go. Oh, brother, great tribe, aren't you? Stick together. Never tell anybody anything. Go on now, look, kid. I'm not a cop or anything. I just want to find... Hang on, Hang on to him, man. Don't let him loose. Ah. Sure. Oh, no, you don't, shorty. I got you. Hey, don't let him loose. Ah, there we are. Hold him and let me go through his pockets. Hey, hey, wait a minute there, Skipper. What are you talking Box about? Box of cigars. Left him out on deck. Stolen. Stolen. Fine and still He hasn't got anything. No. Well, well, he's too big anyway. Not the one. Not what? Go on, Shorty. Get out of here. You're no help. <laughs> I told you, jerk no. <sighs> Water rats. Same the world all over. All the same. Good cigars, too. First mate, give him to me, so I'd let him stay uptown. Wait a minute, Skipper, wait a minute. Were you looking for another kid? No. Uh, yes. Something stolen last night, you mean, huh? During the night? Cigars? No, no, this afternoon, a few minutes ago. Come up like, like rats open the horses. I tell you, it's awful. Marseille, it was my last port. Same thing, same the world over. Nobody stops them, nobody can stop them. Ah, kids. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Skipper. This your ship tied up here? Yeah, leaky old tub full of potatoes. Frenchmen like potatoes. Uh huh. Looks about ready to sail. Uh, were you here last night? Uh, what are you peddling? Dope, punch boards, cheap liquor? No, no, listen, will you? You have trouble with kids getting aboard, huh? Characters like you in every port, too. Dock loafers always got a deal. <laughs> sure, I have trouble. That's the customs, pier watchmen. Nobody can stop them. See those big rat guards? Right over them, like monkeys. Uh-huh. Uh, did some kids get aboard your ship last night? No, no. Now, stop pestering me. Are you sure? Around 3 a.m.? fight was on the pier, not the ship. What fight? Oh, for... that's the pier watchman. He's the one spreading the story. A couple of bums, I guess. I don't know. My old deck watch was sound asleep, of course. You didn't see it? No. Yeah, I, I don't know. Woke me up. I yelled, shut up out of my porthole, went to sleep. Ah, hello, the skipper. Wait. I'm so glad to catch you. Huh? Oh, what now? A sailor comes ashore again. I'm just going to take a minute. It's about a woman, you see. Oh, that I see. And, oh, so nice. But get, uh, right now, I want get to... Get what I mean, Doc Loaf was all trying to sell something. Now it's telephone numbers. Go on, Baldy, get out of here. Wait a minute. I've seen this guy before. Huh? Well, it's not mutual. Skip, if you just listen to me... His name's Salvori, I'll tell you. Yeah, I've seen him in lineups. Are you around here last night? I beg your pardon. Oh, it's a great neighborhood. Salvori, the big operator. Last trip he was here selling raffle tickets for a three-wheeled automobile. Oh, but escape the list. Thanksgiving, listening. they say. Well, thanks and good night. You pester him. I'm going backwards. Yeah. Hey. Look at that, would you? That what you want to see us about, Salvori? That crowd down at the pier? Something's happening. No, 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 no. I got an deal to make. Come on, let's take a look. Uh, uh, afternoon, friends. What's going on? Uh, uh, don't suppose you have 50 cents or so. See, uh, an old pal of mine. See, he was going to buy me Thanksgiving dinner, you Never see. Never mind but... that. What are those men doing down by the water? Uh, uh, fishing, sort of. 50 cents is about all it would take, though, you see. Now, this old pal of mine, he would have spent five bucks, you know. Men's pie and the whites, you know. Said so last night. Hey! Hey, down there, hey! Listen, Buster, did you say last night? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> what are you doing? Yeah. Hey, sailor! Now, yeah, now it seems to me that... Hey, look out there! Salvori! Well, he left in a hurry, didn't he? Body, Skipper! Got a body! What? Just fishing him out! 
Guy floating with a knife in him. Guy float. Yeah, with a knife. Holy smoke. Yeah, see, that's what I tell you. You see, a, a pal of mine, he was going to buy me a Thanksgiving dinner, see? Only instead, it looks like he got in a fight about 3 a.m. last night, I figure. Yeah, got murdered, see? Uh, so, uh, tell me, how's about the 50 cents? Bob Bailey would play the title role until early in 1954. But it would be his next role as Johnny Dollar, which would cement his radio legacy. We'll return to tonight's adventure of George Valentine in just a moment. When new RPM motor oil was developed in the laboratory, it was subjected to the most rigidly controlled tests that modern research could devise. And it proved tops, the oil that doubles engine life between major overhauls due to lubrication. The next question comes from... Yeah, you were on way back to Rutgers that time, or are you just... Yeah, we were going down, uh, they had the Centennial down right. there. It was really pretty interesting. They had a marvelous time. The first time I've been to Rutgers in about 30 years, and I don't know if you've ever gone back to the scenes of your youth. It's a little difficult sometimes. Somebody once said that you go back to try to recapture the scenes of your youth, and you get back there and you discover that what you're really trying to recapture is your youth itself. If you'd like to make a note of that, Ed, it's a, uh, and uh, if you want to throw it in from time, if the show is bubbling along too fast, you want to slow it down a little. Uh, 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 just, we could uh, have a Xerox of that made up and pass. We'll have that Xerox and pass it out as the people leave tonight. We were talking about college reunions and going back. You said an interesting thing about when you see people you haven't seen for quite a few years, that they look like children or youngsters, you remember them. Growing up, and it's not quite real if you haven't seen yeah, it. That's true. Yeah, that's, you know, when we were waiting for the parade, a funny thing happened. We were in the, they had a whole cavalcade of cars. We were sitting there, and there were a very nice bunch of kids from the college and a lot of kids from town. And they brought sandwiches up to us and hot coffee and stuff. And uh, one kid came up to me and handed me a cigarette. And I don't smoke, and uh, I, I had the cigarette, and I looked at it, and I thought, this is a rather strange-looking cigarette. <laughs> I, it, it smelled a little strange, and I said to Harry, this looks a little uh, strange, doesn't it? And just then, the president of the university came over, and he said, I'd like you to meet the chief of police. And he said, he's in charge of the escort for the parade. And Harry's saying that to me, so I tried to slide this to Harriet, and she backed away. Now I'm here, and I'm standing here, and I quickly stuck it in my pocket, and here is this thing smoldering in my pocket, and I'm in between the chief of police and the president of the university. But, oh, it's uh, lit. Oh, yes, it's lit. It's oh. lit. Yeah, we're all ready for action. When the chief of police put his hand out, when the chief of police put his hand out, I didn't know whether he was going to confiscate the evidence or he was going to shake hands with me. In the fall of 1951, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet was airing Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time over ABC. Recorded from the network's Los Angeles KECA station, Ozzie Nelson had negotiated a landmark contract with ABC in the summer of 1949. On the heels of the CBS talent raids, ABC had signed the Nelson family to a 10-year contract. It guaranteed they'd be paid no matter what, and gave Ozzie total creative control of the show. 
ABC also had the option to bring the series to TV after 1951. Under the sponsorship of Heinz Foods, the Nelson family moved to ABC's newly potent Friday night schedule on October 14, 1949. Actually, sometimes it was a little bit difficult for us to uh, know where the separation came mm -hmm. between our own lives and our lives at home. Of course, we also had a great deal of problem not indulging in too much uh, togetherness, so to speak, mm -hmm. taking each other for granted, because it's a tough thing when you're with somebody in the daytime and the evening, too. I remember one time we, I came home and Harriet said to me, do you realize that we we're on the set that you're nice to everybody except me? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the boys felt a little the same thing, too. Mm -hmm. We leaned over backwards to try to give them as much freedom and, and as much liberty so they wouldn't be under the dominance of their parents you know, during the rest of their lives. Because they were under the dominance of their parent during the time they were on their show, because you were the director of the show. Yes, they had in, to be, in that they? essence. Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing, because as I mentioned in the, the book, there's really no way, particularly when Dave and Rick got married, there's no way of directing your son and your daughter-in-law without being a little bit of an irritating force. Sure. You rarely hear anybody say that a director is a nice guy. They'll say, well, he's a so-and-so, but he's a good director. The entire supporting cast, like Janet Waldo, moved over. It was not easy. I mean, you could, just anybody no, couldn't do radio. <clears throat> you had to be a very quick study. And in fact, I think it's too bad now that the young kids don't have the opportunity of working in radio. It was a great training ground. Because mm -hmm. it was so mm -hmm. great as a training ground. I mean, we worked in front of audiences. We had a sense of comedy timing, you know, the audiences would tell us. We, um, we, worked, we had to be such quick studies. We had to be able to pick up a script. I remember one time I got a call uh, for a silver theater, and the actress who had played the starring role opposite a Kirk Douglas had um, panicked. She was in pictures, oh. and, and she was a foreign actor. She had an accent, <laughs> and so she was very insecure about having you know, to do mm -hmm. it with so mm -hmm. little rehearsal. And they called me, and I had to go and be there and on the air within about 20 minutes and you know, read it cold. And it was a great challenge, but it was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> the show also prominently featured Lorene Tuttle as Harriet's mother and John Brown as the neighbor, Thorny. Both Ozzie and Harriet were wary of TV. David was then 15. Ricky was 11. The 51-52 season was seen as practice for bringing the entire cast to the new medium. On November 16, 1951, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet broadcast sidewalk superintendents. Uh, Harriet? Yeah? Do you realize that next Thursday is Thanksgiving? I sure do. Boy, those days and months really roll around, don't they? The holidays sneak up on you before you realize it. Oh, I realized it all right. In fact, I have a little Thanksgiving hint to housewives already. Well, good. Let's hear it. Well, if you want a really delicious Thanksgiving treat, go to your grocer and ask for a Heinz plum pudding or a Heinz fig pudding. How's that? Well, the idea, of course, is wonderful. But personally, I, I think it's just too direct. See, you've got to be tricky nowadays. Like, we have Heinz plum pudding and Heinz fig pudding. If you don't give a fig for the plum pudding, I'm sure you'll go plum crazy over the fig pudding. On the other hand... <laughs> 
good because it's Heinz. The H.J. Heinz Company, makers of 57 varieties of fine foods for 80 years, present the amusing described adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring America's favorite young couple, Ozzie Nelson and Harriet Hilliard. Let's look in at the Nelson family. It's just a little past noon, and the table is set for lunch. Hmm. I don't see anybody around, though. Oh, yes, there's Harriet. And just in time to answer the phone, too. Hello? Hello, dear. It's Mother. Oh, hello, Mother. How are you? Just fine, dear. How are the boys? Oh, they're fine, thanks. And Ozzy? Oh, he's fine, too. No, Mother, you called me. <laughs> oh, how silly of me. Of course I did. Now, let me think. What in the world was it I was calling you about? I'd better call you back later, dear. Oh, that's okay, Mother. Well, you've probably got lunch already, and I don't want to hold up productions. No, you're not at all. Well, I know how absolutely famished two growing boys get around lunchtime. Well, they're so absolutely famished that I've been holding up lunch for them for 20 minutes. I don't know what's the matter with them. They were late coming home from school yesterday, too. Well, don't worry about their eating. They probably stopped off for a chocolate malted or something. Oh, my goodness, what am I saying? I don't know, but it sounds like treason. <laughs> well, they'll probably come scampering home any minute now, so I better hang up. Goodbye, dear. Oh, wait a minute, Mother. You haven't told me what you called about yet. Oh, for goodness sake. Shall I call you back later? Oh, I remember what it was now. I promised Catherine Thornberry I'd remind you of the committee meeting at the women's club tomorrow. Oh, yes. Catherine said to please try and think up some unusual way to make money for the Thanksgiving basket. Okay, Mother, I'll try and figure out something. That's nice. Goodbye, dear. Goodbye, Mother. Oh, hello, dear. When did you get in? Oh, I just arrived. Poor Mother. She called me up especially to tell me something and then couldn't remember what it was. Well, I must admit I've done that a couple of times myself. Well, she finally remembered that she was calling me about the meeting tomorrow afternoon, so I just didn't have the heart to tell her. Tell her what? She phoned me about that last night. <laughs> You're all a little forgetful now and then. Well, I guess it must run in the family. I've had lunch ready for half an hour, and the boys haven't shown up yet. Oh, that's strange. I'm getting pretty hungry, too. Me too, boy. Hi, Mom. Oh, Mom. there you are. Where in the world have you two guys been? I told you she'd be mad. What do you mean? Just what I said. I told you she'd be mad. You mean I told you? I don't know what I mean, and I don't mean you told me. I mean I told you. <laughs> well, I don't care who told who. You're right. See, I told you. You mean I told you. All right now, enough of that. Where have you guys been? We were just downtown. Why didn't you come home when you were supposed to? We couldn't, Mom. We were helping some men dig a hole. Where's this? Oh, they're digging the foundation for a building down on Main Street. It's a pretty big one, too. Pretty big? Heck, I'll bet you it's as big as Lake Tachapuku. <laughs> Say that again. I'm not so sure I can. I hope you weren't.
weren't getting in the way. Heck no, Ricky was supervising the job. The man let me wear his hat. Oh, that's nice. You ought to see this big ditch they're building, Mom. I think I can forego the pleasure. It's really pretty interesting, Mom. Well, what about your lunch? That can be pretty interesting, too. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. Your mother's just a little annoyed because you fellas kept her waiting so long, and I think she's right. I'm sorry, Mom. We just forgot all about the time. It just slipped by before we knew it. Don't they have any clocks down there? Yes, ma'am. But we tried not to look at them. <laughs> That's just about the size of it, I guess. Here after you guys keep track of the time. We will, Pop. You ought to see the neat machines they have there, Pop. Steam shovels, drills, bulldozers. Yeah, I, I know those things can be pretty fascinating. We used to watch them when I was a kid. Did they have digging machines back in those days? <laughs> sure, they had such modern conveniences as the stone axe and the spear. <laughs> oh, well, come on now, let's get to work on this food. Lunch is ready. Oh, swell. Come on, Ricky. No, thanks, Mom. I'm not very hungry. Not hungry? That surprises you? I should say it does. Doesn't surprise me. Keep quiet, David. <laughs> what is this all about, anyway? Remember I told you how nice that man down there was? What about it? He gave me a roast beef sandwich at lunch. Oh, no. That was all, I hope. <laughs> not quite. Well, what else did you eat, for goodness sake? Just a half a piece of chocolate cake, a piece of apple pie, and two bananas. Oh, Ricky, you shouldn't have done such a thing. He insisted, so it seemed like the polite thing to do. Poor guy, he couldn't have had much lunch left for himself. Oh, no, you should have seen him, Pop. He had enough there to feed an army. Well, those working men need big lunches. That, hey, that reminds me. Don't forget you guys promised to help me rake those leaves out in front. Oh, sure, Pop. We'll do it right after lunch. I have to run down and get a new rake, but I'll be right back. Are you going now? They're right after lunch. It won't take me a minute. Well, suppose you fellas go up and wash your hands before eating. And look at all that mud you've tracked in here, Ricky. Who, me? Yes, you. You're covered with mud from the ankles down. You take off those shoes this minute. Heck, my shoes are outside. These are my socks. <laughs> oh, that's just fine. Come on, Ricky, wash your hands. I don't have to wash them, do I, Mom? I'm not going to eat. Of course not, dear. Oh, boy. I want you to go upstairs, run the water in the tub, and take a good hot bath. I had to open my big mouth. <laughs> I'm just getting a little exercise. There's nothing like a brisk walk to make you healthy and strong. Which brings up an interesting point. How come a guy who's supposed to be so strong can't even carry a tune? <laughs> oh, I tell you, you sure get off some good ones, boy. <laughs> oh, it's really nothing. Okay, Thorny, you win. Uh, what are you doing downtown, anyway? I came down to buy a new rake. Don't tell me you're going to rake those leaves off your front lawn. You'll be happy to hear that I am. Well, a fine friend you turned out to be. 
What's the matter? You sore because you'll have to rake up the rest of your leaves, too? Not only that, but now I won't have any place to dump them. Oh. <laughs> That's a shame, Thorny. Well, I'll be seeing you. Hey, wait a minute. Take it easy. What's the big hurry? Well, David and Ricky are waiting for me at home. They're going to give me a hand with the leaves. Well, that can wait a few minutes. Come on, walk down this street with me. They're breaking ground for a new building. No, I have to get to the hardware store. It's right on the way, Oz. Come on, it's quite a sight. Yeah, so I've heard. Boys were down there all morning supervising the job. Yeah, my boy Will was there, too. Poor workmen must have really had their hands full. Yeah. Will came home with his feet covered with mud and his mouth covered with chocolate layer cake. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how kids can waste away a whole morning just standing around watching a silly thing like a steam shovel? Isn't it the truth? Uh, how far is this? Just a couple of blocks. Boy, that's some size steam shovel. Oh, I don't know. I've seen bigger in my day. That's a pretty big one, Oz. Especially if you get over close to it. Come over for a second. No, I, I really have to go, Thorny. The boys are waiting. Just for a second, Oz. I hear they have one of those tremendous bulldozers here, too. Well... Look at the size of this, will you, Oz? Come over here. Hey, careful there, bud. Who, me? Now, I know you want to help and all that, but we have to be very careful. <laughs> oh, don't worry about me. Now, he has a very hard head. That's what I'm afraid of. These are very delicate machines. They don't sound very friendly to me. Oh, nonsense. They love to have people around so they can put on a show. I'm the one who gets a little out of hand now and then. Well, just as long as one of those automatic man killers doesn't get out of hand, I'll be happy. Those things are really dangerous. You say something, Thorny? It wasn't important. Come on. <laughs> uh, just a second. Hey, doesn't that shovel seem to be dropping quite a bit of dirt? Yeah. Hey, what about that? You talking to me? Uh, my friend here was just wondering about the shovel. Well, if you'll step into my office, I'll be glad to let you have a little booklet. It'll answer all your questions. Now, here's one case where you're actually talking to the guy who wrote the book. No, no, thanks. That, that's very nice, but... Uh, no, we really can't stay, can we, Oz? No, uh, we really can't. I, I'm in quite a hurry. Well, okay, gents. We really have to hurry along, don't we, Oz? <laughs> Okay, I don't mind you standing around watching, but I just want you to know one thing. I'm all out of lunch. Monty and Harriet will be back in just a moment. Not so many years ago, Thanksgiving, that's just next Thursday, by the way, was a festive day for everybody but the lady of the house. I also recall in those days you had a vocalist named Harriet Hilliard. Yes, right. With whom you sang boy-girl duets. Yes, now, whatever happened yes, to her? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, she became Harriet Nelson. And, uh, right, you bet. Well, the reason I did that, I started to have a vocalist with the band, was because Rudy Valley, if you recall, was a tremendous name in those days. It's hard for people nowadays to realize what a tremendous name Rudy was. The girls loved him and the guys hated him. That's right. 
I didn't like that idea very much, and I thought maybe rather than to sing the songs to the girls that the guys brought to the dance, if I could have a, an attractive girl on the bandstand and sing songs to her, musical comedy fashion, it might work out, and so... Uh, it worked out. It worked out, yes. ...your choice of Heinz 10 pure fruit jellies and other time-saving Heinz fixings for the feast. You know they're good, because they're Heinz. If there's ever been a big construction job in your neighborhood, then you know what Harriet Nelson's going through. The steam shovels and jackhammers seem to have a magnetic attraction that causes cold lunches at home and tardy marks at school. However, children aren't the only guilty ones in this case. At 1.30, Ozzie Nelson left the house to buy a garden rake. It's now almost 4.30 and still not a sign of him. Pop doesn't get home pretty soon. It'll be too late to clean up the yard. That's just what I was thinking. It won't hurt my feelings, boy. Well, what's the difference? You'll still have it to do tomorrow. Golly, three hours to buy a rake. Pop must be awful choosy. Well, I'm sure he hasn't spent all this time shopping for a rake. wonder where he is. Well, he'd better not be where I think he is. You don't suppose he had an accident? Yeah, those steam shovels are pretty dangerous. Ricky, <laughs> quiet. It's all right, David. I think he's down there, too. You want us to go look for him? Please don't. I'd probably end up eating dinner alone. Oh, we wouldn't do that to you, Mom. They stop work at 5.30. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'd rather have you stay right here where I can keep an eye on you. Maybe that's Pop. I certainly hope so. Hello? Hello, Harriet. It's Catherine Thornberry. Oh, hello, Catherine. Well, I just wondered if you'd gotten any brilliant ideas for the Thanksgiving baskets. I've drawn a complete blank myself. No, I'm afraid not, Catherine. I've been so busy trying to keep track of my family, I really haven't had a chance to give it much thought. Oh? What have Ozzie and the boys been doing? Well, it's this construction work that's going on downtown. The boys spent all morning watching it, and I think Ozzie's spending the afternoon there. Well, if it's any comfort, Harriet, you've got a buddy. That husband of mine is a sidewalk superintendent, too. At least that's what he calls himself. I have a better word for him, though. Well, personally, I don't see what the big attraction is. I guess it's just the idea of watching somebody else work. Yes, could be. Of course, that's nothing new for Thorny. He does that at home. Well, it must be terribly interesting. Ozzy's been gone for three hours. Same thing. In 1952, Universal Studios gave the Nelsons the opportunity to make a film. They all starred in Here Come the Nelsons. The film was a hit, and everyone was convinced the family was ready for TV. The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet would make its TV debut on Friday, October 3, 1952. But one significant member of the cast wasn't allowed to join them. Yeah, Ozzie Nelson took up for John Brown. That's interesting. Well, he firmly believed that John had nothing to hide and wasn't guilty of anything that a lot of other people weren't guilty of, which he didn't consider harmful. He could see the ruination of John's career ahead, and indeed that's what followed. What AFTRA did, he did this after a lot of hand-wringing, was to uh, 
tell these people who came before us and wouldn't agree to talk to the House Committee that uh, they would be suspended forthwith until such time as they would recant and go and talk to the House Committee. And they said they'd talk to the House Committee, every one of them, if the committee would lay off the question, who can you name, what other people can you identify as being cohorts of yours, to hang up with all of them. So John Brown was not allowed to work under after conditions, and the union's contract was pretty firm with all producers, radio and television, of course, as was SAG and the motion picture industry. If you were suspended, you couldn't work. About what time was this? It was right in the middle of the McCarthy hearings, which was 1953 era sometime. Uh, Ozzie and Harriet actually did lose John Brown then. What happened to him? What became of him? I think John is among the deceased. I've not heard anything about him in many years. I don't know. Did he get back to work after that? I don't think so. Certainly not in uh, what you'd call big-time parts like he had before. In 1952, just as John Brown was making inroads into TV, he was listed in the red channels. Despite Ozzie Nelson's petition, both AFTRA and the network shut Brown and many others out. Veteran actor Don DeFore got the role of Thorny. After 1954, John Brown never worked in Hollywood again. On May 16, 1957, Brown complained of chest pains and was en route to his doctor's office. He suffered a massive heart attack along the way and died on the spot. He was just 53 years old. For more on the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 107. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Today, as it must to all turkeys, your druggist presents The Bob and Ray Show. What's Thanksgiving without a little fun? And what's a little fun without Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding? In November of 1956, the comedic duo was in New York appearing over the mutual broadcasting system. 
It was for a weekday DJ comedy series. It lasted until September All right, all right, Leona, all right, all right, all right. right. Just, For goodness yeah. sakes, we're just, just head beam. Wow. Ah, great Scott. A happy Thanksgiving Day, one and all. Boy, this is certainly a pizza of Thanksgiving. We had goose at my house. Well, that's a traditional Thanksgiving Day uh, meal, I guess. It's more traditional than a turkey. More traditional? Well, I don't know whether it is or not. They had turkeys back in the old original Thanksgiving days. Goat. They had goose too, but they had turkeys and... Uh, on the back, they had goose. And turkeys too. But we hope everybody had a very good day today. And this is going to be kind of relaxing uh, three quarters of an hour. At least we're going to relax. Of course, it's all brought to you, you remember, by your druggist. <clears throat> we have to get that in. Your local apothecary. And I saw some uh, real apothecary shops in Europe this summer. I think I told you about it once or twice before. Oh, you've told us about it 20 times before. <laughs> well, I can tell you about the time my friend Jim burned his arm, if you'd prefer that no, story. No, I wouldn't like that one either. Those are about the only two I know. Well, anyway, the Bob and Ray Show was brought to you by a druggist. And that's that. And he wishes you a very happy Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Now, the old line Sand and Gravel Company, distributors of mud, invite you to ride with the men of Squad Car 119. My name's Sam Finch. Me and my partner, Ralph R. Kruger, Jr., were the unsung heroes of the police force. We ride a prowl car at night, risking our lives so that you can live yours in peace. A couple of weeks ago, we were checking the book in the day room when my partner, Ralph R. Kruger, Jr., turned to me and said, Hey, Sam, look at me. What's that thing you've got over your head, buddy? It's the evidence from the masked gunman case. I found it here in Glimmett's drawer. It's just a pillowcase with holes out for the eyes. And then you use these drawstrings here to tighten it around your neck. That's pretty clever. I guess Glimmett's going to present it at the trial. I suppose he will. Yeah. I'll get it. Hello? This is the skipper. The slingshot bandit has struck again. 45, 38 El Segundo. You better roll on it. Right, skipper. Skipper, huh? Uh-huh. Slingshot bandit has struck again. You better roll on it. Paladin. Paladin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a pretty good guy. That show really came about because of the Dick Boone television show. They decided they wanted to capitalize on the success of that show, of the TV show, so they decided to use the same scripts that had been used in the Boone show for the radio show. But unfortunately, they did not work out. So we uh, scrapped the whole thing, and everything that was done on Have Gun, Will Travel on the radio was original. 
And as far as the character is concerned, what is there to say? But he was a grand and glorious, heroic, magnificent, wonderful, masculine, strong-hearted... And magnificently played. Magnetic, yes. <laughs> character. <laughs> That's all. western series of note that began on TV and moved into radio was Have Gun Will Travel. It starred John Daner as Paladin, an 1875 gun for hire based in San Francisco. The TV series was in the midst of a successful second season starring Richard Boone. The switch was an attempt to attract radio sponsorship. The idea worked. The radio version debuted on November 23, 1958. It aired over CBS on Sundays at 6 in New York and at 7 p.m. in Los Angeles. Paladin studied at West Point and emerged from the Civil War a mercenary with morals. He announced his services with a card. It said, Have Gun Will Travel, Wire Paladin, San Francisco. The only symbol was a white chestnut. Daner approached the radio role as if Dick Boone's TV version never existed. Somebody somewhere in the business said, wouldn't it be dandy if we had a radio series to run concurrently with the TV series. The point of it was that we were going to use scripts that originated with a TV show, a Dick Boone's show. Right. We were going to use their same scripts and just adapt them to radio, but it didn't work. Having been committed to a radio have gun, we finally discarded all of the TV scripts that we thought would be very handy to transpose into radio we wound up writing original radio, Have Gun Will Travel. By 1959, Have Gun and Gunsmoke were the last dramatic productions being recorded for CBS in Hollywood. Network radio drama was on its last leg. Radio was deserted by its own mother and father. It was left to lie on a doorstep and wither and die, consciously and willfully. On June 28, 1959, have Gun Will Travel broadcast an episode called Homecoming. Paladin is caught between a wrongly convicted man now returned home and the man who put him in jail in the first place who won't stop squeezing the wrongful convict. The bizarre part is Paladin was the man hired to send the wrongly convicted man to jail two years earlier. need a gun for you, mister. You're all eaten up with fear and hate. The most you can hope for now is a fast death. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875, the Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Oh, Mr. Paladin? Hmm? Oh, yes, Miss Wong. You want light for a cigar? Oh, <laughs> I didn't realize I hadn't lighted it. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> 
Thank you. I noticed you sit here a long time study item in newspaper. Yeah, sort of turn back the clock. Oh. This is the Hammond Sentinel, oh. last week's edition. Now, I'll read you the item. Oh, Deathbed confession clears Ed Stacy. Dying of gunshot wounds suffered in a futile attempt to rob the Overland stage. Oh. Joe Barnes, a former driver, confessed to another holdup two years ago. Oh and exonerated Ed Stacy, who had been convicted of the crime and sentenced to a long term in prison. Oh, so? See, Miss Wong, two years ago, I brought Ed Stacy back for trial. Oh, oh. You have pain from conscience, but you only do job, Mr. Paladin. That's what I've been telling myself. You tell yourself. But at the same time, I don't like to feel that I've been responsible for taking two years out of an innocent man's life. But it's done. It's over now. I'm not so sure. Here's the rest of the newspaper report. Will Stanhope, president of the Overland Line, announced he would personally arrange for Stacy's release and expressed profound regret at the miscarriage of justice. Oh, it's a curse. Sounds fine, doesn't it? Oh, it's very fine. Uh, well, that telegram you delivered to me a half an hour ago was from this same Will Stanhope. Mm. Now, what, what did I do with him? I don't know. Oh, now here. Listen. Need you. Life in danger. Oh. Come at once. My, how unfortunate. Oh, what do you plan, Mr. Paladin? Well, he says at once. At once. I guess I'd better get started. Hello, this is Marvin Miller with another page from your American Heritage scrapbook. In the 17th and 18th centuries, newly discovered America offered breathing space for the cramped peoples of Europe. But no one could guess how rapidly the vast, unsettled wilderness could be tamed. Englishmen arriving in Jamestown and Plymouth were beset by famine, disease, and hostile Indians. They were lucky to survive at all. Populating the colonies was a slow and arduous process. But due largely to the great Puritan migration from Europe, by 1641, some 50,000 English settlers had reached North America. Seventy-five years later, this continuous migration from Europe and the British Isles had brought the colonial population to 435,000. On the eve of the revolution in 1775, two and a half million people inhabited the 13 colonies, approximately one-third of the population of all Great Britain. The first federal census in 1790 disclosed that less than 3% of the population were in towns of more than 10,000. Most immigrants lived on the land, but cities were beginning to flourish. Revolutionary Philadelphia, with its 40,000 inhabitants, was the first colonial city in size. New York was second with 25,000. Boston with 16,000, third. Charleston, the largest city of the South, numbered 12,000. America was growing. And in spite of all adversity, America was destined to continue its growth. Why? Possibly because America was a dream for freedom-loving people, then as it is today. The trip to Hammond wasn't exactly a pleasant one. Before I reached town, my horse foundered. I walked the last three miles carrying my saddle and bag. I was exhausted, but the matter seemed urgent and I'd already wasted time, so I went directly to the Overland stage office. Except that he appeared to have shrunk a bit and his skin seemed to be drawn even tighter over his thin, sharp face, 
Will Stanhope hadn't changed much in the two years since I'd last seen him. I recognized the man with him as Sheriff Clyde. Hello, Paladin. Oh, Paladin. Glad you got here. Uh, sit down. Uh, oh, I'm tired. So whatever it is you've got on your mind, Stanhope, let's get started on it, shall we? Paladin, he's come back for revenge. He just came home, back to his ranch. What else would he do? Are you talking about Ed Stacy? You know about Stacy? Read it in the paper. Stan Hope here thinks Ed's going to be gunning for him. Boy's got a right to be sore, considering what happened. But I say if we try to make it up to him, show him we're glad he's back, he'll cool off. I agree. Let's wait and see, huh? Yeah, wait for him to kill me, I suppose. Well, all I know is I can't arrest a man for what he's thinking. Better get back to the office. Now, do you know why I sent you that wire, Paladin? I need someone to protect me. Uh, just what do you want me to do, Mr. Stanhope? Yeah. There's $3,000 in this envelope. If Stacy could be persuaded to leave Hammond for good. $3,000 is a lot of persuasion. Uh, use whatever you have to and keep the rest. I, uh, I wouldn't even care if you kept it all. As long as I never had to worry about Stacy again. That kind of deal is out. But I'll find Stacy and talk to him in the morning. Uh, maybe if you saw him tonight. I assure you I'll be much more persuasive after a night's sleep. I was just settling down to get that night's sleep when I heard someone in the hall outside my hotel room and a splintering sound as the flimsy door gave way to pressure. I made a try for my gun, but it hung just out of reach. Paladin. Who are you? My name is Ben Stacy. You and me are going to have a little talk. Ben Stacy. We're going to have a little talk about the way you and Stan Hope railroaded my brother. Ed, I wasn't his judge and jury. I did the job I was paid for. You're wrong, mister. You ain't been paid yet. I'm taking care of that right now. Ben! Ben, stop it! Stop it, you fool! You want to kill him? Uh, we're only trying to help you, Ed. I, I know, but you go on, Ben. Go on. All right. I was only trying to help Yeah, you. I know. Pellin. Pellin, you all right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, God. I was close. I was too close. I heard you were in town. I was afraid. You see, Ben, he gets an idea somebody's trying to do me harm. It's, it's hard to shake the idea out of him. Well, why didn't you let him, let him finish the job? It might have saved you some trouble. I don't see there's any trouble between us. There's going to be. If you don't leave Stanhope alone. Me leave him alone? That's right. You got things backwards. Why don't he leave me alone? say Stan Hope is after you. Tell me about him. When I came back, I made up my mind to forget what had happened. I, I didn't expect any favors. I just wanted to start from scratch. But with a fair shake. 
You aren't getting a fair shake, huh? I made this trip into town to get supplies my ranch needs. I'm going back tomorrow. My wagon is empty as it was when I came. Now, a merchant in Hammond will extend me credit. The pressure's been put to him. Stanhope carries a lot of weight around here. Uh-huh. Here. What's this? It's from Stanhope. $3,000. I don't get it. I think I do. You're his conscience. You bother him. His conscience? Why the price tag on it? There's a condition. What? You're to leave Hammond. How come? Stanhope believes you're going to kill him. Oh, I thought about it. I was going to make him pay for every rotten second. Uh-huh. And now? Now, he's just a sniffling, scared little man he's not worth going to prison for. Now, take his 3000 back to him. His conscience is going to stick around and bother him for a long time. The next morning, I went to make my report to Will Stanhope. There was a crowd gathered in front of the Overland office. Debris littered the street. The windows were broken, and the door was ripped off its hinges. As I walked in, it sounded as though somebody were tearing the place apart. Somebody was. Big Ben Stacy was on a rampage. Sheriff, stop him. He's gone crazy. Sheriff! Ben, I order you to stop. Ben, don't cry. I don't shoot. You better get the cuffs on him, Sheriff, before he comes to. Yeah. Phew, that boy really went loco. Uh, he, he'd have killed me. What happened? Somebody told me... Ben. He'll be all right, Ed. Sorry, Ed. Gonna have to lock him up. Ben do this? Yeah. Ben's a simple guy. Easy going as a rule. Only one thing sets him off. It's always been that way ever since we were kids. Easy, Ed. Ben don't like seeing anybody shove me. All right, what started him off? Well, I gave him a letter. A letter? It was for you. He read it and busted loose. Well, what was in the letter? It was a delinquent tax notice on Ed's ranch. You're threatening foreclosure? For $3,000. Taxes haven't been paid for two years. Well, you know why they weren't. Couldn't you have waited? It's routine business, Paladin. I'll handle it my way. You're handling it Stanhope's way. No, look Everybody here. in town's handling things his way, and I'm up to here with Easy there, boy. I was willing to forget that Stanhope in this town cost me two years out of my life. I just wanted a chance to start over, but you won't let me. You're pushing me around, treat me like I was really a criminal. Now, Ed, this is A man a... can take just so much pushing around, Paladin. You gonna take my brother to jail? I have to, Ed. All right. Stanhope, we'll play this your way from now on. Since I've already put in two years for nothing, I got something real big coming right out of your hide. Yeah, you heard him, Sheriff. He threatened me. I demand protection. You'll get it when I see that you need it. Paladin? You didn't play straight with me. You didn't tell me you were trying to crowd Stacy out. Well, I, I gave you that $3,000 for him. After setting him up so he'd have to take it and leave town or lose everything. I had to do it, Paladin. He would have killed me. He didn't want any part of you. But whatever happens from now on, you can blame yourself, Stanhope. Here. Your money. Hire an army with it. 
Gun Will Travel's final episode aired on November 27, 1960. The show closed with no mention in the trade columns. All remaining radio dramas, with the exception of Gunsmoke, were now produced in New York. It was just before dawn when I was awakened by the commotion outside on the street. I got out of bed and opened the window. The past always seems a little crazy when you view it through the reducing glass of time. And perhaps the early days of broadcasting were more than just a little crazy. But they were exciting, and they were days of discovery. Like all discoverers, here and there you found splendid new harbors, and here and there you ran shamefully on a mud bank, and more dangerously, under rocks. Lots of things that seem funny now were distinctly not funny when they happened. This is the way it has always been, and this is the way I think it's always going to be. Thank you and good afternoon. Thanksgiving homecoming is almost complete. We began with the answer man on WOR, and I think it's only fitting we end back at WOR with a man who questioned everything. That's it. That's it. Just getting warmed up here. <sighs> uh, it's Thanksgiving, yeah. Hey, listen, uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, uh, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question here to you. Did you ever spend the Thanksgiving in the armed services at all? Did you, George? You were in the Marines. Uh, did you, uh, do you, do you, can you actually recall it? Well, I'll tell you, I had a, I had a Thanksgiving uh, one time. I, you don't mind if I, uh, if I uh, bother you here a little bit today and uh, talk about the Army, do you? <laughs> a lot of guys get very nervous when you mention the Army. But uh, when I, uh, one Thanksgiving, I'll never forget, you know, the, Really, it really, it really made it uh, in, a, in a curious way, and only a guy that's been in the army can understand exactly what this is all about. So, uh, you know, if if uh, if you're a sensitive type, I would suggest you go back and try your toothbrush again. Maybe it'll work this time. But uh, one time, I'm in the army. See, and, and uh, <laughs> they came out, and here we were. You know, we were in this place that was nothing but rain all the time, and it was uh, at this point we were in the Ozarks. And it was just raining and raining, and it was either it was either cold and raining, or it was hot and raining, or it was uh, dusty and raining. I don't know how it managed it at the same time, but it did. You know, it, you could you could have dust flying in your face and rain hitting on top of your head, all at the same time. You, you your bottom could be cold and your top is hot, and uh, you could you could have uh, frostbite and uh, heat rash simultaneously. Of course, that was all part of the. Uh, uh, the, uh, I, I guess the mystique of this thing, and and there was nothing for miles around, absolutely nothing. 
Uh, there were 458 million guys in this one camp. And the nearest town, which was about 15 miles away, you could only get to by one bus that went every half hour. Well, of course, you had 130,000 guys. And I mean 130,000, exactly 130,000, which is roughly about five times the size of Trenton. That's how many guys you had in this camp. Well, uh, you, I don't have to describe to you what would happen whenever they would hand out a pass, you know, like on the Friday afternoon or Saturday morning when they give out the passes. There was a line of guys that would stretch roughly from Manhattan to New Brunswick, New Jersey for guys just waiting for that bus. Now, where did the bus take them? Well, it took them to a, a town that was about the size, I would say, of Times Square. That town. And what did it have in it? Well, it had two diners. It had the Blue Eagle Diner, It had, <laughs> which was a colorful diner. It had a hotel which had about 12 rooms in it that were constantly being booked by these tall, large ladies that wore red dresses. It had, uh, it had one tiny USO and 6,948 beer taverns that sold nothing but watered beer at uh, about 60 cents a glass to the GIs, you know, who obviously could afford it because they were making well over, some of them making well over $45 a month, you see. So uh, it, was, it was all in all a happy situation. So this, this went on for like... Uh, Oh, it must have been about like eight months. And nobody in my company had ever gotten out to any place. We were always on bivouac, way out in the boondocks. And we had been on bivouac now before Thanksgiving. Bivouac, of course, uh, if you don't know what bivouac is. Bivouac is the other side of going camping. Now, a lot of you out there, uh, <laughs> a lot of you out there, I wonder how many guys formed a lifelong hatred for camping because of bivouac. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, uh, it's camping. And what do you do? Well, you camp in this, this little thing, a little pup tent. It's a shelter half, two shelter halves hooked together. Yeah, that's right, in the rain with the tent pegs and these little poles. And the tent is roughly about three and a half, maybe two and a half to three feet high. You don't stand up in it or anything. It's just a little shelter half. It's a little tent. It's a little, little uh, triangular-shaped tent. And all you can do is, is lie flat in it. And so if you spend about three or four months lying flat in a little triangular-shaped tent, you begin to lose a lot of the zing of camping. You know, Abercrombie and Fitch uh, just uh, doesn't make it. Now, one of the things that you have to do at, at, in this type of camping, you got to dig a little trench all around your tent. And the trench is supposed to drain off the water. You got it? Now, part of uh, that is the water that, uh, that is drainable. All the rest of it is soaked into your clothing. It's soaked into your blankets. It's soaked into your, your soul. And you lay there at night, and uh, you can hear, you can just hear the rain dripping down. I don't know. It always seems to rain on bivouac. You hear the rain coming down. You can hear you can hear the water seeping in under the bottom of the shelter half. And once in a while, you'll hear some guy with an oh, inchoate cry, you know, just an inchoate cry of rage. You'd hear it once in a while down in the, the maybe four or five tenths removed in the blackness. Somebody, get on! You jump, and and he jumps out of the tent. You just get stir crazy. That's exactly what happens. You literally get stir crazy. I I, I remember one guy. One night, after about three months in the field, 
in uh, alternate rain, snow, heat, all various types of things that happen to you. One guy just 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 went out of his bird. Uh, Flip, yeah. Have you ever seen a guy after a You know what he did? He did something that all of us secretly always wanted to do. He stood up in his pup tent, just stood boat upright. Well, look, t- you know, the tent's only about two and a half or three feet high. <laughs> well, he stood up, and, and, of course, the tent all popped, and all the, all the uh, tent pegs popped up out of him. He said, I had enough of this damn thing! And he ran down the company street, trailing his, his tent behind him and all the ropes and stuff like that. And, of course, here laying in the open was his shelter half-partner. See, two guys occupy each one of these tents. And this guy's laying there with the rain coming down on his face, and his buddy jumped up and ran down the company street and disappeared into the weeds. Well, it happened about 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and uh, everybody just laid there for a couple of seconds. didn't know what happened, you know. And, and all of a sudden, somebody started to break out the flashlights and stuff, and they could just see this big hole in the ground where these, this guy jumped up, a few tent pegs laying there, and here was this guy laying in the, in the, in the, in the, in the flashlight beams, his buddy was laying there, and he was not yet awake. He was just, what's the matter? And then the rain is coming down. He figured at long last it had happened. Whatever it is, it had happened. See? And he had this look of fantastic fear. And we didn't find this guy. He ran off in the weeds. Now, this was in the middle of the Ozark, where you can get lost awful quick. I'll tell you, next to the Everglades, I think you could get lost quicker in the Ozarks. This guy wandered around for about a week out in the weeds, trailing a shelter half. He wore a shelter half like a poncho or something. And they finally caught this guy, and they brought him back to the camp. And, I, I you know, <laughs> he sat in the back of a truck with a shelter half, and they were taking him into town. They, actually, what they were going to do, they were going to send him off to another camp, see, where eventually he would get what was euphemistically called a Section 8. Now, a Section 8 means a Section 8. That, uh, ask your nearest ex-GI what a Section 8 is, he'll tell you. And he sat in the back of the truck laughing at us. I remember he's, he's laughing at us, and, and uh, everybody felt, uh, you know, not, well, there were two schools of thought. One, one group felt sorry for him, and the other group uh, kept figuring out why the hell they didn't do it. Because he's going. See, he's going. He's in, this, he's in this warm truck, and they're taking him away. And we just lay there in the rain coming down. Well, I, you, can, you can see the scene. See, we had a, a field kitchen. And uh, here's what the field, uh, well, for those of you who don't know what a field kitchen is, it's a, it's a lot of, it's a, like a lean-to, actually. And it has these uh, ovens that they have to bury in the ground. And, uh, and uh, on top of that, they have these GI cans uh, with hot water cooking in them all the time. You're supposed to clean out your mess kits and stuff with the hot water. Yeah, you dip them in the hot water. First, you dip them in the, in the lukewarm, soapy water, and you slosh it around in there. Then you dip them around in the rinse water, which is supposed to be boiling hot. And that's supposed to take all the soap off the off your mess kit. Well, about three times out of ten, it didn't. And then what would hit the company is a thing called the GIs. Now, if you think X-Lax is effective, all i got to say is you ought to try GI soap. Uh, it's a, it causes a lot of excitement. <laughs> we don't go into that here. After all, it's Thanksgiving. But that, nevertheless... About a week before Thanksgiving, and here we are, we're deep in the heart of the Ozarks, and, uh, and uh, we've been out there now for about seven, eight months, and the rain is coming down steadily, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, boredom is, is hanging so heavily on your hands that you could actually take pieces of it and knead it in your hands. Yeah, have you ever felt a piece of boredom? Well, 
it's kind of soft. It's like silly putty. And they, you could just take it in your hands. You know, you can make snowballs out of it and throw it back and forth, you know. And uh, the, the biggest thing every day was mail call. That was the number one thing out there in bivouac. This, this, uh, this troop uh, carrier would come roaring up the path, and the guy would holler, Mail! Mail call! And uh, he'd jump out on the back, and he's got all the mail, and he'd start handing out mail. And, of course, there would be a brief flurry of excitement, and then uh, there'd be a couple of moans, and guys would, uh, yeah, go running off into the weeds. The, 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 we had our daily quota of Dear John letters. Now, what is it, a Dear John letter? Well, it's a, it's a long-distance airmail letter which is given the, some guy in your company to mitten. I mean, the real fast mitten. And what is it, the mitten? Well, it's Dear John. Every letter starts out very formal like that. Dear Fred, I have been thinking many things over. Well, you shouldn't read any more. <laughs> or, dear Fred, do you remember Howard, who you once met the time you picked me up at the office? Don't read any further. Just take that letter, friend. Well, some guys didn't. Some guys even went further than tearing them up. They did other things with them letters. That's right. That's very handy in that case. If uh, that is, if it's the right kind of stationery. However. Uh, the Dear John letter, that oh, the Dear John letter, of, there's hardly a man alive today who hasn't gotten one form or another of the Dear John. Now, the point that he did not know at the time was that was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. But at the time, it's very difficult to know. You know, it's like, uh, uh, that reminds me, you know, the place you work at, you generally think is the worst place in the face of the Western world. You know, it is only later when you get a job at another place that you realize... That reminds me, this is WOR New York. Hit the button, will you please? Like with Shep, it's important to remember, at least for our next episode of Breaking Walls, that not all those who wander are lost. You did a lot of Lux Radio theaters and stuff, didn't you? Oh, yes. I used to love radio, and I still do. I, I, but in those days, radio was so important, and the movies... Uh, used the, for instance, Lux Radio Theater, lots of times they would dramatize an upcoming movie on Lux Radio Theater just to sort of almost doing a preview of the movie. And I've done a, an awful lot of, awful lot of radio. I had a radio series that turned into the six-shooter. Here's a last-minute Christmas shopping suggestion. Jingle bells, jingle bells, bells of NBC. Oh, what joy to cook and bake while listening merrily. Pots and pans, sink and stove, work goes easily. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. What will you hear in your kitchen after Christmas? Bacon sizzling, coffee perking, dishes clinking, and, if you're lucky, a new sound. NBC radio listening on that new set. The perfect gift to lighten mother's long hours in the kitchen. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. James Stewart as the six shooter. Dumpa dumpa dum tuba dum teda dumpa dumpa duda. Dabba dumpa dumpa dum tuba dum teda dumpa dumpa duda. Ba dumpa dumpa dum tuba dum teda dumpa dumpa duda. Dabba dumpa dumpa dum tuba dum teda dumpa dumpa duda. Next time on Breaking Walls. We welcome in the holiday season with the story behind one of the most beloved radio westerns of all time, especially for its star, James Stewart. 
of the merry organ, sweet singing in the choir. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning and Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. On the interview front, Eve Arden, Ken Carpenter, Norman Corwin, Gail Gordon, Virginia Gregg, Gloria McMillan, Carlton E. Morse, and Janet Waldo spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Eve Arden, Roberta Bailey Goodwin, and Dick Joy spoke with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. John Daner spoke to Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. John Daner also spoke with Neil Ross for KMPC and John Hickman for WAMU. Ozzie Nelson spoke with Johnny Carson and James Day. Frank Stanton spoke with CBS for their 50th anniversary in 1977. And William Paley spoke while receiving an award on November 20th, 1958. Selected music featured in today's episode was Thanksgiving and Joy by George Winston The Holly and the Ivy by Velvet and Voices Simple Gifts, Pachabell's Cannon and Autumn Stars by Michael Silverman and The Pavane by Steve Urquiaga Subscribe to Burning Gotham the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City it will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 122 will usher in the holidays and focus on the Six Shooter with three episodes from December of 1953. It will be available beginning December 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, Give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until December 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 121, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. The holly bears are very as fair as any blood And Mary had a little baby boy for to do for sinners good All the 
rising of the sun and the running of the deer, the playing of the merry organ, sweet singing in the The honey and the ivy